Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Okay, everybody, welcome to tonight's program. Let's get real, Coach Menachem Berkel. Tonight, Zoycha to be here by Sheer 96 with Matas Miller and Coach Menachem Bernfeld. Again, I always start off every Sunday night thanking everybody who's involved in the program for uh, promoting it, putting on their WhatsApp statuses, emailing to the family and friends, and posting it all over. It's a tremendous chizik. And again, like we said every week, this is Sichas Chaverim. It grows uh, by itself. We're holding here, and it's an amazing, amazing supposed to be part of it. If anybody wants to join the WhatsApp chat, just WhatsApp me personally at 848-525-0066. Again, that's 848-525-0066. Save the number in your phone, and I will uh, send you every Sunday the flyer. And um, please post it around and send it to family, friends, anybody could be negated to. Um, if you want to get the emails weekly, please go to please go to um, menachemberfel.com. And sign up to get the weekly emails. Again, for all the people that are watching this later or on YouTube, please click on the like button for Coach Menachem Berenfeld. Subscribe. So uh, tonight around 3 o'clock in the morning, when he uploads it to YouTube, you get to click. And um, you know that he puts up the new shirt. I have a lot to say tonight, so we're going to try to cram everything in tonight. Matas, I have a lot of things to say. I'm going to be talking more than you tonight. I hope you're okay with that. I hope everybody came and enjoyed for me. First, I want to thank all, uh, starting to thank all our advertising sponsors, the Lakewood School here for voting us in Lakewood. Special thank you to Rabbi Yannick Kazak for promoting us on the Kazak programs. Special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer for uh, promoting us on all the digital platforms. Tonight, I also want to say the Coach Menachem show is collaborating with OK Clarity to bring greater health and wellness to the Jewish community. Um, but OK, uh, the OK Clarity online platform of mental health support in the Jewish community. OKClarity.com, you'll find the best therapists, coaches, nutritionists, engage in forms and stay inspired. Links will be found later in the show. Okay, hold on. So, Menachem, could you hear me clearly? Yeah, just a little echo. A little echo. Okay, hold on one sec. Hold on one sec. Okay, I'll try to figure that out soon. Yeah, I'll try to figure it out soon. You can hear me? You can still, you can yeah, hear? You're good, continue, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, um, a few things to first of all say. First of all, this week, it's something really amazing happened. Uh, we got integrated with a program. Now, anybody therapists that are watching here tonight and everybody going forward, even for our past program, anytime we have a therapist uh, presenting, we're excited to announce that we upgrade our show. You can get CD credits for mental health professionals. Uh, many of our classes are given by acclaimed mental health therapists, such as Matis and other people. Many of the attendees, professional therapists, have asked to see credits. So we're proud to partner with Core Wellness. It's a national CE provider that's able to give live credits to those who are here, live or recorded for those who are watching or listening later. So after the share, Menachem will send an email with the links. Um, it's a website, corewellceu.com slash get real, or you can email them at support at, at corewellceu.com. And um, you can actually get credits for watching this program. So that'll be an amazing thing for all therapists that are watching here today. I think it's a big honor to be uh, upgraded like that. Okay, next I also wanted to say, um, for anybody who's here the first time, every Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. on this Zoom ID, we have many different therapists, Rabbanim topics, very you know vital to people. So please spread the word, this same Zoom ID. Next Sunday, Hashem, 
March 20th, we have an amazing event with Gedalia Fenster. He's actually our first uh, businessman presenter because we're presenting. He, he actually established the Breslau the Learning Center. He's very big into Nachman's teachings, deep, blessing, deep blessings and self-help. And um, we're going to be talking about practical tools, how to let go and get all your energy back. So it's going to be a really powerful program. Gedalia Fenster is a famous, very, very famous guy. Um, it should be a very deep and meaningful program. If you know anybody that wants to get, you know, get rid of those negativities, things that hold you back, he's, he's definitely, um, you know, he's definitely could do it. So it should be an amazing program tonight. Again, we have the special honor of having world famous, definitely Lakewood famous, but world famous Mattis Miller, Mattis Miller with us. Mattis, you know what number share this is with, with you? Third time. Third time. So third time's a charm. And the channel will uh, hopefully will be very inspiring, very knowledgeable, and we'll get to really get to the core of things tonight. We started doing gematrias. So gematria tonight's year is 96. We came up with koyach hamayuchid, which means you need a special koyach to deal with this disorder. You have to really get into that koyach. So we felt it was a good gematria for that. Let's start off first with the opening with Coach Menachem Bernfeld. Menachem, start. Thank you very much. I want to welcome everyone for coming tonight. Tonight is going to be a big program because you look, look at the title, Understanding and Healing. I think each individual word would need a full night to understand BPD. Uh, you know, we wish we could understand it in one sitting. And then the healing, for sure. If we can get, you know, Matas tell us what to do and then we're healed. Beautiful. Everybody is looking for that. But before we start, I do want to mention today is, is a little bit of a... It is a sad day for Kal Yisrael. I have to mention about Rav Chaim Kanievsky's Levaya, which that you know, Kal Yisrael lost a pillar, and uh, there are so so many people that have been in his room or in contact and heard of stories, which there are so many coming out, which is really unbelievable. But to be all over in Kal Yisrael. And the biggest and all different types of people, problems, solution, ATSIS, which is really unbelievable. And forget about his uh, who he was as a person. So we do have to acknowledge that Hashem should help. And we should be able to take what we need. We need a Nechama. Um, before we continue, um, I do want to mention, I want to thank everyone that help, is helping us with our book. And there's another few days left. Um, I'll put the link in the chat, which you can still be part of. We're trying to put out from each year. We're up to now almost 100, maybe two books that Amir Shashem will, will, will go to print. And if you can help us, we'll be a big schos. So like we mentioned, tonight is a very challenging uh, topic. And depending who it is, it really doesn't really make it, it does make a difference, but whether it's the self or a spouse, it can be a child, a parent, it can be a coworker, somebody that you have a relationship with. And, you know, we try to throw this term BPD. If you don't get along with somebody, the first thing you say is, oh, they suffer from BPD. But th that's a good question, you know, to, to clarify what it is. And just because you don't get along doesn't mean that it's BPD. But I do want to mention that it's not only in the borderline personality disorder where people can learn and see how different people work 
it's it's really in every relationship. It doesn't have to be so severe. You get to learn yourself. You get to learn your spouse. You get to learn your the people that you have to uh, relate to. But when you go through such a situation, which is very very hard, and you're trying to figure out, which you want to have clarity, sometimes you can find yourself in a place where it's really really dark. And you might might uh, tell yourself whether it's you going through it yourself or with a spouse or somebody else that yes you know Hashem can send nisyonis and uh, Hashem can do anything can do it right now but not for me not in this situation it's you know whatever you're going through but tonight we're gonna hear a little bit that there are skills there are there is hope. And uh, I heard once somebody asking one of the professionals, tell me that one skill that would help me when I find myself dysregulated, when, when I find myself in a place where I, I just can't make sense out of. What's the skill I should use? And basically the answer was that skill that works for you. Because there are many, many skills and you have to get to know yourself and to know which skill will work for you. So while we're listening to these ideas, or while somebody finds themselves in a situation where they think, not for me, it's just not working, and there's no hope, I would say keep on breathing, which breathing itself is a skill, can help for many. But until you find that right person, or until that right time comes, you know, it might take a little bit of time till we figure things out, till we come to some type of solution that can help us cope. Keep on breathing. Don't jump. Don't give up. There are skills out there. And that's why, Baruch Hashem, we have this chus to have with us, Matas Miller tonight, which I believe deals with these ideas and skills day in, day out, whether it's the cases that we think can't be helped or others day in, day out. And I know there are many that come back and say, that after therapy and they've learned the skills, it's really unbelievable how it helps them to continue and live a successful and fulfilled life. So if we hear that and we, we know there is hope out there, even if you find yourself in a dark place, take a deep breath and let's hear what we're going to hear tonight in Mitzvah Shem. Beautiful, Coach Menachem. Can you hear me clear better now? A little bit better. Go on and uh, it's going to get better and better. Okay. I think, I think I fixed it. I want to make sure it's clear. Good, good. It's good. Okay, fine. Making sure it's good. Okay, let's continue over here. Okay, so first of all, I want to mention that Kesha Nafshi, which we're very involved with, you know, that helps people with struggling teens, Rip Shimon Russell. It's going to be here at Shimon Lakewood April 3rd, and it's going to be a presentation all day for parents with struggling teens and for people that are in Tchinuch, teachers. So please get involved with that. I'm not going to also send that in the email the links that people want to sign up. They're asking for a $36 suggested donation to just attend, but I advise everybody that, that could come, should come. It's definitely great. I wanted to mention also about Matis. Matis, last time he was on, he spoke about his big book that came out, right? The Uncontro Uncontrollable Child that was actually already translated to Chinese, just in case anybody wants to get it in Chinese. It's such a good book and it's been definitely getting around there. I see it all over the place. And now he came out with a master parenting class. How many classes in Matis? 10? 10 classes, yeah. 10 classes mm -hmm. online. And um, from what I understand, Matis is from the, one of the best therapists I know personally. And people, people will vouch for that. So I'm going to say it myself. Um, the classes are supposed to be amazing. And um, he said for people that are coming on tonight, Coach Menachem, 
Uh, somebody says they're a huge fan of his book and his class is a must for everyone. Okay, great. Thank you for echoing what I'm saying. Um, so anybody can go to the website, master, masterclassparent.theuncontrollablechild.com. I guess by the Uncontrollable Child website, you could pick up probably the audiobook. And he's offering 50% uh, off the price for this 10-class 10, 10 course. Use the code Coach M. I guess that's for Menachem, right? Not Coach Usher. So Coach Menachem, <laughs> Coach M, for 50% off till April 1st. Um, take advantage of it if you have kids. And definitely, you know, we, we, did a, we did a whole segment on that. It was an amazing segment. Matis, right? We had some real positive feedback. We had some arguments online. It was good. It was good. We had a good time. So come and sign up for the class, which would be amazing. Again, let's do, do an overview tonight. We're getting into the borderline personality disorder. It's, it's a big topic. Um, it's obviously, you know, there's a lot of personality disorders, but this is a big trait. comes up a lot. I personally, when Matas brought up, he said, hey, let's do a share on this. I felt it was a very important thing just to really clarify it. People throw around the term very loosely, not really understanding it. Also, I feel there's like a tremendous amount of like despair on the whole, like a very like, and there's really, there's a tremendous amount to learn. And I, I do believe Matas is one of his expertise. I know he has a lot of expertise, but this is one of his expertise. So I think we could all learn a lot, whether you yourself are diagnosed with that or a spouse or somebody you know, or just general knowledge. I think everybody can gain here for being here tonight. So thank you for coming. Um, tonight's sponsor, I want to talk about somebody who sponsored tonight's share. Tonight's share was sponsored by Fresh Start. I know if some of you heard one of the programs we had with Shimon Russell on. He's actually one of the directors of this program. Um, I'll read a little bit about it. Fresh Start is an intensive seven-day retreat designed for men and women who want to understand the process to heal unresolved trauma, neglect, neglect and abuse. It's, it's in Michigan, it's in Detroit, uh, set right off Lake Ernie. It's a quiet, breathtaking surrounding, luxury accommodations. It's a week, I actually, I actually visited, I haven't been there when I'm speaking about it. I drove by to see it, it's a really a beautiful place. And they have the top people, I'm gonna read a little bit more. Described by the participants as life transforming, an oasis of healing. The Fresh Start Retreat is the first of its kind in the firm world developed under the guidance and leadership of a team of world-renowned trauma experts, licensed clinician therapists, doctors, Rabbanim, by proven treatment principles, authentic Torah values. I, I do know people that went there. It's, 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 it's an amazing program. If anybody has you know, been through a lot, seven-day intensive program. So to please check it out. You can go to their website. Um, the website is fsrc.com. Or they happen to have next Sunday, they said they have one spot open for the women retreat on March 27th. You can call the WhatsApp at 248-301-9997 if you're interested in going. Uh, again, for those who need it, it's definitely an amazing program. Before we get started, I'm going to read, Matis, I'm going to read your bio, and then I'll give you the opening, the doors. Before we get into it, I just want to clarify with everybody, we have a lot of questions that came in tonight. A lot of things will be clarified through the night via the questions. The questions really came in strong, and we're really going to tackle it. So, Matis, I'm just telling you beforehand, do the opening, but it doesn't have, have to be long. The questions will get to the core, but we need to get to, okay? So, Matis Miller, LCSW, with a bunch of other titles, I don't have time to read it. As the founding director of the Supervisor Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapy of New Jersey, Matis Miller is a licensed clinical social worker and certified cognitive behavioral therapist with over 15 years of experience. His impressive education and training background includes certification in CBT from the Academy of Cognitive Therapy and the Beck Institute for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Matis is the author of a groundbreaking book, The Uncontrollable Child. He's a seasoned lecturer on CBT and DBT-related topics, providing guidance to individuals, educators, professionals, and families. His book and his accomplishments are multi- course master's classes designed to help parents understand the children and implement effective strategies to create happy, healthy homes. Matis Miller, thank you for agreeing to come on again. The floor is yours. Shia Menachem, thanks so much for that intro and for inviting me. Um, and I have to say, thank you for bringing up this topic. I know we discussed it a number of times um, and clearly there's interest. People are here, which means a lot. I mean, this is something that is a highly sensitive topic, talking about borderline personality disorder. 
because it affects so many people um, and it causes so much pain and it causes pain for the person who's going through it and for the people who are surrounding them or in their environment or that they interact with. And on every level, understanding the sensitivity and how it impacts them and to have this opportunity for us to get more clarity on what borderline personality disorder is, to be more sensitive, to address the stigmas around it and, and really knowing what it is and what it is not. And as Menachem said, that there is hope. Um, perhaps sometimes our expectations are beyond uh, what we would like, but there are treatments, there are tools, there are strategies, there are mindsets and perspectives that can really help us deal with these challenges. Hashem gave these challenges to individuals, and he also put things in the world to help us be able to help these individuals. Um, and it's not easy. Um, and I, I think tonight we're going to talk about a spectrum uh, of struggles and symptoms. I think people think, you know, borderline personality disorder to the extreme sometimes, which is where people are really suffering and in pain and unfortunately have suicidal thoughts, gestures, perhaps attempts and things like that, which are really painful. And then people who are emotionally sensitive, they might not fit the criteria for BPD, but I think we can talk tonight about those individuals as well. And some of you know some of my work with parenting and children is uh, addressing some of the issues that actually are related to the causes, which I hope to get into to tonight that developed uh, personality disorders and struggles. Um, so there's a lot for us to discuss regarding these complex dynamics. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing all different questions. I would imagine there are people here who struggle with BPD themselves um, and maybe want to understand more. And then there are people who are family members or friends or in the workplace. One thing I do want to say to start, and I think this is important, because I think many of us, you know, and I'm going to say to myself, this is not a struggle that I was given. We've all have in our struggles. Um, Marsha Linnan, who actually developed one of the foremost treatments for dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, has shared that she struggled with borderline personality disorder. And that's what helped her, helps so many, um, is that those who are struggling with this, this disorder, I believe quite strongly in all my experience and my difficulties within the therapy room as well, is that they are in far more pain than we are. And I know that's hard sometimes to take in and perhaps someone say, well, were you married to someone like that? Or uh, do you have a child like that? And of course, it's not an absolute, as I always say, and there's that possibility. When I've gotten through my work into the daily uh, pain and struggle and situations of someone who really is struggling with borderline personality disorder to the point where regularly thinking that it's not even worth living, and will engage in behaviors that some of us would never even think about doing just to help them feel, feel better is quite telling um, that, that there is so, so much pain and struggle for them. At the same time, as we say on the dialectic, as we'll talk about, there is tremendous amount of pain also for those in the environment. And I can tell you also, and this is really important, that perhaps most of the people certainly that I met with borderline person, personality disorder are not trying to cause other people pain. That's not their intent. Um, they're not there. I know there's a word of manipulate and perhaps, yes, there are certain behaviors that they do in order to get their needs met, which are unhealthy and ineffective. But we have to be mindful and be aware that it's not with intention. So we are going to, I want to take every question that we can, Ashi. I want us to, you know, to, don't be scared to ask 
if we find that it's judgmental, we'll just help you modify it and say the same thing in a more effective way so that we can address the sensitivities. Um, but I know, as you said, Ashi, there are so many questions, so many things we want to jump into. And I think as we go through some of the questions, as I spoke to Ashi before, I think we'll cover a lot of uh, what we hope to cover this evening. So Ashi, throw yourself in. Okay. Thank you, Matas. Thank you for keeping it short. I know there's so much to say. Again, like I said, there's, there's so much to say on this. It's a huge topic. And we, we've done, not Matas, we've done like just personality disorder, like very across the board. And I, I think it's Kedai to really, you know, really to go into this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I want to jump, jump on that. There yeah. are many personality disorders. Uh, borderline personality disorder is very distinct as in many personality disorders. I mean, there is a theme across personality disorders. But I think it's really important that you are taking an evening to just discuss that because to, to put it with other disorders, I think, is, is an injustice. Yep, I agree with you on that. See, we agree. Not always we agree. Now I disagree. No, so let's take no. a poll. Let's, let's get a feeling from the crowd. And then the first question we're going to start off is just really going through the characteristics and really drawing the outline of what it is. So that's, that's really where we're going with this. We'll start with that. But let's, let's take the poll first. Okay. If everybody can read the questions, two questions just to get a feeling of what we're dealing with tonight. Have you had experiences with BPD? Have you, A, myself, I mean yourself, have, you know, are diagnosed with this or felt, I don't know, or you feel like you might have it, be a spouse, see a family member, a daughter, or, you know, a father, a mother, whatever, or D, none, none of the above. So basically you're just coming, you're coming to here, you, you know the topic, you're just here for knowledge. Just please answer that first one so we can get a, see what we're dealing with. Number two, just want to get an understanding. How do you understand what BPD is? What do you understand what borderline personality disorder is? Is it someone who's just crazy and helpless? Someone who likes to manipulate and control others. So it's like a manipulation type of disorder. Someone with a severe emotional illness. Or D, someone who is unable to be married or have a relationship. So the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that somebody has this, if you had to choose one of those four, I know there's probably other options, which one would you choose? So let's answer those two questions and then we'll really uh, start breaking it down what it is. Matas, again, I want to clarify. I feel like a lot of people throw out the term when somebody's a little emotional or, you know, I, again, like I feel everybody has some of the characteristics, some of the traits. And it's very like, uh, I want to say it's an abused word, like very like thrown out, very, you know, callously. So I want to really clarify it. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. And then let's share with everybody. Okay, here we go. Have you, have you had experience with BPD? So 6% of the people here today say that they themselves have this. 9% is a spouse, 44% is a family member. So most people here tonight, they're here because they have a family member that has this disorder and 41% of people are none. They're just here, I guess, as therapists or yeah, I, Can I comment on some of that? Okay. I, I, I think it's fascinating data. Well, first of all, I'm really impressed that 41% of you are here to learn about something that you don't necessarily have experience or you don't know you have experience about and you'll learn that this evening. Um, but that's, that's just showing how effective us you are in, in give, providing information and helping people grow and coming back here. So that's pretty amazing. Not surprised that most people are family members, but I do want to give a shout out to those who, those, I think 6%, 17 of you who acknowledged and are here to learn. And, uh, you know, I support you for coming on here and being open and honest. And uh, so I, I think that's pretty incredible too. And I was really happy to see. Let's get to the second poll. I think it's, a, it's even a more telling one. Um, how do you understand Actually, what BPD is? Well, only 2% said someone who is crazy and helpless. Think... You can hear me? Not can you hear me? Okay. How do you understand what BPD is? Yes, okay. I hear you. 
2% say someone who is crazy and helpless, 25% of people, someone who likes to manipulate and control others, 65%, most people by far, someone with severe emotional illness, and 7%, someone who is unable to be married or have a relationship. So I think that's a very telling matter. What do you want to say about the second poll? Yeah, I want to say a lot of things. Well, first of all, I'm sure some of you said, well, some of them are similar. So, uh, you know, it's hard to answer just one of those, maybe for some of you. Um, well, I'm real. I'm really, I'm really, you know, again, uh, I'm very taken by the fact and, and honestly, genuinely, and I, I give credit to, to our community, to the clinicians, to the education, the fact that so many people understand that there's a severity and this is an illness. Um, I, I also see that clearly that there are people who still struggle uh, of their perspective and how they see this, and I get it. It makes sense why they see it that way. And I don't know if I'll change your perspective tonight, but I hope to at least broaden it and help you see it from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, but I think that's it's it's really telling. I do see again. There's still there's that 25%, which is pretty significant, um, or let's say close to 30%, who is really struggling with um, making sense of this as as an illness. And perhaps those people are those who have family members who are dealing with this in a daily grind. And it, it is really hard based on what you're seeing to be able to believe that internally these people are really struggling with an illness. And, and, and perhaps when we talk tonight and we answer some of the questions, uh, you'll be able to perhaps hold that belief, maybe that yes, maybe they are controlling and manipulation and maybe they can't have relationships easily. At the same time, they are also suffering. And I think if we can do that tonight, that would be huge. <laughs> okay, so before we get into it, we have a few live questions and people are texting live. Just wait. And when uh, get this going to be a big, big question, we're going to really break it down. I feel like this is the way to start. Okay, I understand that there's basically nine criteria for, for borderline personality disorder. Can we review them together one by one, by one explaining them together? Me, you, Menachem, we could speak through them and really understand it one by one so we get the, the basic outline and understand it. You want to take the lead, Matthias? Go. <laughs> Do you want me to go through the criteria together? Yeah. Let's start with the first one. Okay. So the first one, which I think is actually probably the most prominent, um, and that's a fear of abandonment or rejection. And that's real um, or imagined. So it could even be imagined sense of abandonment. And this really people who struggle with this, with uh, BPD, it's chronic. And they are constantly terrified, literally terrified, if you can imagine yourself high levels of anxiety that you're gonna be abandoned or left alone. And, and that's actually what happens in the relationship because if the person doesn't call, let's say the spouse or the family doesn't call and, and they're, they, they have these uh, even imagination, thoughts, strong, intense emotions, person left me, they don't care about me. And uh, you know they show up late, they don't take care of me, they, they didn't respond immediately. They're talking to someone else and they have these frantic efforts to actually, because no one wants to be left alone. And I think it's really important when I say no one wants to be left alone is, no, we don't want to be abandoned. We don't want to be rejected. I mean, I've been rejected. It hurts when I've been rejected. Um, you know, if I uh, send in a, recently, I sent in a proposal to speak at a certain conference. And I remember the feeling, I got back the answer and they say, you know, we're not accepting uh, your proposal. And, and it, it hurt. I, I, I was rejected. Um, how long did it hurt? You know, I don't know if it was 10 minutes, and maybe I thought about it a little later, a little bit longer, but I went throughout my day. 
What here is the intensity is far greater than what we would imagine. So they really feel like they're gonna be left alone. And what they do is they do anything to try to make sure, which anyone would, if you really felt you were gonna be alone in the world or people you loved about, care about, wouldn't respond to you, you'd actually keep calling them, asking them where they are, when are they gonna be home? And, and your frantic efforts to make sure that person stays and sometimes even getting aggressive physically or verbally because you want your needs met, can actually sabotage the relationship. And that's what happens, unfortunately, in people who struggle with borderline personality disorder is because they're so desperate for those relationships, they end up hurting those relationships. And people get so overwhelmed, they feel they can't breathe. They can't do anything right. And that's what actually hurts them over time because of that frantic, but they are really suffering and feeling like they're gonna be left alone and they're reacting to that emotion. So that's number one. Number two is, and again, this is an outgrowth of the others as we're gonna go through, is unstable relationships, which is this over-idolization. That's, and that's again from that emotion. It's like, you are my everything. There's so much passion, connection. Everything seems so positive in the relationship. And then suddenly it changes to intense anger and uh, being upset and frustrated. And even the person who's uh, married or has a relationship with that person or works with that person is a little confused. Like you were saying how amazing I am, how I do everything for you, I'm your biggest support. And now you're telling me I'm a horrible person and I don't do anything for you. And with a rage and an anger, and that's very, very confusing. And that's why many people feel like this relationship is like a roller coaster. It's like, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. It's just not stable. And again, as we're going to see as a later criteria, that really comes from that intense emotion, once again, is the passion and that feeling. So we have fear of abandonment, unstable relationships. By the way, there are nine criteria in the DSM. That's our diagnostic manual for uh, psychiatric disorders. But you only have to meet five in order to meet criteria for the uh, diagnosis. Number three is unclear or like this shifting self-image. What we refer to as an identity, identity disturbance. Like you don't have a strong sense of self. And what I've read and understand and what I've been you know, working with my clients, a lot of that is because can you imagine when you're having all these different emotions um, and one day you're feeling this way and one day you're feeling competent and capable, one day you're feeling hurt, one day you're feeling like you can't do anything right. Um, then you're anger and screaming and yelling. You're like, what am I? And, and it, you, you also, because you don't know who you are, you really look at it like adolescents, we find that they're constantly changing with the trends. They're doing this and then they're changing their look and they're changing what people call them. Anything to try to give themselves a sense of, of image, a sense of self, um, because they're so con confused within themselves. Number three, is impulsive, self-destructive behavior. Before. And we know this as, we up to four, that's right, number four. Shopping, addiction, road rage, spending money, um, sexual behaviors. What happens is we know what all impulse is. Impulse is related to us not thinking about the consequences we do what's now. And someone who's struggling, again, back to that emotional sensitivity and dysregulation, when they are in so much pain, they need to soothe themselves without addressing the problem. They need to address that pain. And going, you know, engaging in an addiction or shopping or spending is giving them that, some of that positive rush in their body and that feeling to help deal with that pain. Also, we know associated with emotion. 
just want to clarify this a little bit. So every once in a while, somebody gets in a bad mood themselves, me included, and I just say, oh, I want to go shopping and buy myself a brand new suit. I also want to, is that excessive shopping? Like what, what's the level of, people do this, right? Just self-care, go out and spend money, go on a vacation. So that, that doesn't make them borderline. So what, what's that fine line that, okay, this is excessive? Yeah, so a lot of it is, you know, I'm a bad day. I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go shopping. There's a degree of high impulse here. It happens really quickly. And the key word is excessive. So in other words, you can go, you can go to the store. I'm having a rough day. I want to buy myself a couple of things, help myself feel better. Might not be the healthiest thing, but not be the worst thing. But when they go, they're going to spend $5,000 in a matter of minutes or hours, I should say. So it, it's really the... Uh, the intensity, uh, the time frame that this happens, and, and it's followed with a lot, a lot of impulse um, without thinking, and, and it's extreme. Sort of what you would think about, and this is where people make this mistake, is in, in terms of mania. Those who are familiar with bipolar disorder, they know someone who's struggling with mania, that excessive, completely out of proportion behavior that's, you know, completely where they're, you know, they just go down and they gamble thousands and thousands of dollars within a very short period of time, or, or they engage in other highly problematic behaviors. The difference is, is mania is a mood state that lasts for uh, usually a, lo a longer period of time. I mean, it can happen short, but it's usually days to weeks, sometimes even months, as opposed to here is someone who's struggling with borderline personality disorder. They're experiencing this intense rush of emotion and self-soothing, but the behavior is not lasting uh, days. You know, usually within hours, that behavior is stopping. So you'll see that behavior and the next day, they won't be engaging in that behavior at all, as opposed to someone who has mania, has this frequent pattern, they're talking uh, excessively, goal-oriented, engaging in impulsive, grandiose ideas, um, which is very different in terms of these impulsive, self-destructive behaviors. Number five is self-harm, suicide ideation. Um, and often people look at, you know, this self-harm for sure as attention-seeking, manipulative. Um, sometimes it could be that, but most often, as we know now from lots of research, is it's just people trying to deal with their pain. Um, and again, going back to what I was saying before, you got to be in a lot of pain to do that to yourself, right? Uh, I mean, I've been in a lot of pain. I would never do that to myself. So clearly people are suffering with tremendous amount of pain to even think think about engaging in some sort of behavior that's impulsive and also self-harm and going to hurt themselves. This is something that needs to be taken seriously um, because I know people say, well, they're just making it up. Unfortunately, statistically, we know uh, about 10% of those who are hospitalized for borderline personality disorder actually do complete or die by suicide. So that, that's quite significant uh, for a psychiatric disorder. And therefore, um, we need to take it seriously. At the same time, we also need to understand of, you know, help the individual when they're in pain, because sometimes they do engage in that behavior to get attention. Again, they're scared people are going to leave them. If they engage in these behaviors or they call people up and say, hey, by the way, I just can't do this anymore, then maybe people will come and care and love and be there and be present. And we're reinforcing behavior. So here's where that complexity gets in. I'm not going to address that now, but to understand that. So we're up to five, number six is extreme emotional swing. So I keep talking about this. This is that shifting mood, that really intense psychological pain that they feel on a regular basis. And hopefully we'll get into some questions about causes and where it comes from. 
I like to think about, Marsha Linehan talks about a third degree burn patient and she describes as in their room, the window is slightly open and someone opens the door. And when the door opens, there's a little bit of air that comes across their arm and they feel this intense, intense pain from just a little bit of air. This is what it's like for someone who's struggling with borderline personality disorder is that slightest things. And then once they're in pain, you know, have you ever gotten in it in not the greatest mood, feeling a little down, depressed, and then something else, maybe even something slight happens. And then you're like, oh my gosh. And then you're even more upset. For them, it's just reoccurring because they get into the state and then the next thing and the next thing. And it's living with that extreme shift. And that's what affects their sense of self, that affects their relationships. And it plays into the other traits because you know, you're seeing them joyous and happy, and then they're sad, and then they're angry, and you're like, whoa, what is going on with this person? And that's their sensitivity in terms of emotion. Number seven is chronic feeling of emptiness. And this is like where people describe it, like, I don't feel like, I feel like I'm empty. There's nothing inside of me. And they're so desperate to fill that emptiness. And they look for others to fill those needs. And no matter what you feel, can you imagine? It's like you're putting your gas into a gas tank, Today, it hurts either way, whether it stays in there or doesn't stay in there. But uh, you're putting the gas in and, and it's, just, it's just dripping out. And that's what these people describe. It's just the chronic feeling of this emptiness. And perhaps we can get to some of those causes. Number eight is explosive anger. And this is a really important one because you know many of us think, oh, they just can't manage their anger because they're highly emotional. But what we know, and this is really important in terms of helping people in the treatment, is that anger is often a distraction from the pain. It shifts the self-focus. So instead of focusing on the hurt, the fear, like the fear of abandonment, the fear of being left alone, or the anxiety, what they actually, and this is not always done consciously, they actually want to focus on who caused the pain. Because anger is not as painful as feeling that anxiety and sadness. And this is where the, the eggshells come in too, because people are so scared of that anger. Um, but those who are struggling with this, they're, they're, they're so scared of being or vulnerable and scared, they rather get angry instead. They don't want to feel. And I, it's amazing when I'm able to do this work in therapy and I, people come in angry or angry at me, and I'm able to get to their primary underlying emotion and they can feel it and regulate it, their anger actually dissipates. It's fascinating. And I love to ask the question after, are you still feeling angry? And they're like, no. The shame dissipates also. They can actually look at me and make eye contact. So it's really important that the explosive anger to understand the cause. And the last, which is not as common, and this is more with individuals who uh, struggle with a lot of trauma as well, is these paranoid symptoms. Um, this actually looks psychotic. By the way, anyone curious where borderline came in? Borderline was because they were in the, in the psychiatric hospitals and, and they actually, these, these emotions were all over the place. These out of control behaviors, We'll talk about number nine in a second. And they started to think, you know, are these people psychotic or not? And they started to, it's like borderline psychotic. And that's actually what borderline personality, because in some ways they look psychotic, they're not. They're not psychotic. They're individuals, as I said, who have this chronic emotion dysregulation, which we'll talk about, who are not psychotic. Sometimes though, that stress can lead to paranoid feeling, which means they start to really think that, People are just out to get them. Um, they're always looking over their sh shoulder. They're always second guessing. They might even hear voices. It might even just be overwhelmed. Like, 
hearing their mother's voice and I'm bad and terrible and all these things, but it's transient. Someone who has real paranoia, it's not transient. It doesn't come and go. It's an ongoing paranoia. So this could come again related to moods. So if I would have to sum up these nine criteria, I would tell you like this, fear of abandonment, emotion dysregulation, sensitivity, and interpersonal difficulties in relationships. Now, if you have that, that in itself is enough. Who needs all the other stuff? But that doesn't necessarily meet criteria for BPD. So um, we have these, we're emotionally sensitive, but not necessarily with that intense. And I think it's really important to understand some of these aspects. So Ashi, how was that? Is that clear? I think so. I think it was really, you really went through them and clarified it. And uh, people have questions and we have a lot of questions to get to. So um, I think we're going to try our best. I have to say something again. Okay, I just want to add something on as we go on and take these questions. There is a bright side. And I know those 6% here who said I have BPD said, yeah, there's a bright side, but you said you don't have BPD. So first be us and tell us the bright side. Because I have actually, I do lots of skills training groups and I'm sitting here teaching and I'm talking about being in a, these concepts of being in a rational mind and an emotional mind. And people are like, I'll give you my emotions. Just put me in a logical mind all day. I'll take that any day. I get that all the time. By the way, there, there it goes back again to these people do not want to create the harm. They are so sensitive, caring, empathetic people. And that's my point, is that because of that emotional sensitivity, I've seen it again and again, that there are individuals who when are not, like I've seen their rage or frantically fear of abandonment or really depressed and anxious, they can be of the most empathetic, passionate, caring individuals. And that's how often people get into relationships because people see those qualities. They're like alive. Um, they're so caring or sensitive to other people's needs. There's not narcissism here, okay? This is the opposite of narcissism. Now, people can have narcissistic traits, but someone who's a borderline is not a narcissist. And don't confuse them because they are very, very different. Um, but they, they're also very creative. If you would see like the, the poems, the songs, um, even, even in art, because they have this intuitive emotional sense, they can really pick up things. Another thing is they pick up emotions. So when I, I was joking, I, I come into therapy and they're noticing things before I notice things. They're like, uh, after a few minutes, why are you getting more frustrated with me today? I'm like, I'm not frustrated, uh, a little bit. <laughs> you know? they, they can sense, they, what, you're tired. Oh, you seem so happy today. And again, it's getting a little personal to know that someone can actually read all your emotions, but they have that ability and that sense and the creative, which is really a positive. And they can be wonderful, loving, caring people with the right tools to help regulate themselves. So I think that's an important point. Okay, thank you, Matas. That was beautiful. I think it was clear. And we have a bunch of questions. Let's try to get to it. I'm trying to get to the questions that came in. And uh, here we go. You're on live. Want to go first? Yeah, okay. Um, thanks for taking my question. So my question basically is, is BPD a chemical imbalance in the brain or is it like an emotional illness? And also, is it um, genetic? Like, is it like going from a parent to child and so on? Or is it something that somebody develops in their own? That's an excellent question. So um, there are a few different theories to understand this. And I, as, as we say, you know, in DBT, I think all you're saying, all what you're saying is true. There's truth to every aspect. I think in, it, let's, let's talk about dialectical behavioral therapy, the primary theory, which I think is really 
true for not only people with BPD, but other issues as well. And I think a lot of other uh, therapeutic models would agree to this theory. theory. Um, and that is the biosocial theory. So the bio is that we were talking about, is that there is this biologically, like you're saying, is neurologic, um, that, these, that there are individuals who have more intense emotions biologically. And if you can think about uh, the, the child who is uh, more colicky and crying or sensitive or tantruming, very often you can know that there is a child who's born with more emotional sensitivity. And there are actually three aspects to that biology of an individual. Actually, you know what? Can, could you see the board from here, uh, Ashi? Is it clear? Um, I don't think you could see it, no. We could see it. Just I can see it. I can't see what it says, yeah. Well, I didn't write anything yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's see. Let's see. Try. That's the something. trick. Okay, okay, let's try. I want to try to see something. I can show everyone. Because it's, it's really... Can you see that? Yep. Okay. So basically, the first thing is the frequency. Is biologically, as I talked to you before, is that very, very easily, they're frequently an individual's feeling an emotion biologically. And then when they feel that emotion... Like they go to zero hundred in seconds. It is very intense. Again, we are saying this is biologically very intense. And once they get there, most of us actually hit a peak of emotion. By the way, if you want to know, research shows emotions last 60 to 90 seconds. They do love themselves and keep refiring, which actually develop a mood, but they last 60, 90 seconds. Someone, but these individuals biologically, it actually takes them much longer to get back to baseline than another person. So what we know is in the biosocial theory is the bio biologically the frequency, intensity, and duration of these individuals is actually more, more intense. So that's number one. So they're feeling emotion as a young child and as they develop into adolescence, very, very intense, very quick. The next thing is, is the social, is the environment. And this is where the, the development according from the biosocial theory is uh, what develops some emotion dysregulation. Now, back to your question also, is that emotional sensitivity can be genetic. So we do see sensitivity, emotional sensitivity in families. Uh, that aspect is genetic. And then there's the environment. How does the environment respond to this emotional sensitivity, right? So if you imagine if a child is like just crying, like, are you serious? Are you, are you really crying over that? Come on, you know, yesterday, you know, 10 minutes ago, you were just happy, you know, you, 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 just because of that, you're ruining your whole day, right? Which actually might be an interaction with a child that doesn't even mean to hurt the child, okay? But that's just how they respond. Or it could even be even more severe than that. And that's where it can even be uh, even further traumas where they actually can't tolerate so much emotion. So they actually... Uh, tell that child or individual to, to go away or they're punitive or they punish them for actually experiencing the motion. So this is what happens. Here's the transactional process. I feel a lot of emotion. How does my environment respond? My environment starts invalidating my emotional experience. So if I'm really in pain and you're invalidating my experience, what am I going to do to get attention, Nachal? Continue. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do more than continue. I'm going to up the ante. Right, because I really want a response. And then they don't respond, I'm gonna up the ante more and I might engage even more intense behaviors because I'm so distraught. Now, two things can actually happen. Either finally, everyone runs to respond, which actually 
starts to reinforce a process of dysregulation. Or two is finally I see people not responding and I could start to realize, hey, I start thinking that emotions are bad. Something's really wrong with me, which means that I actually start to inhibit and subjugate my own emotions. And, and which, which actually also, because there's only so much someone can hold an emotion, which leads to a process of dysregulation because they can't. They start to develop this really, really uh, negative belief about themselves and their emotions. So that has consequences. It has consequences on themselves and their environment because they learn to cope by either intensifying their emotions or they actually hold back emotions and don't deal with emotions and act apparent competent and everything's okay. But that actually leads to problems because then their emotions end up coming out and they don't have the tools or know-how how to actually regulate emotions. The other thing is sometimes they're just a poor fit for their environment. It's not that the environment is necessarily invalidating. Imagine growing up in a family where everyone's very studious and straight and mature and you're the loud fun running here and you're just not the right fit and you start to think like something's wrong with you. And that's where, again, the identity issues come in. So that's one area of the biosocial theory and, th and that environment can be very traumatic for that individual. So what we know is, is that a child is born and has trauma and BPD so it's even far, far worse. And about 30 to 50% of individuals who have borderline personality disorder have a history of trauma as well, significant trauma. And that's what makes the treatment far more complex. The other models of theories to understand a little bit about some of the causes is, uh, is more from a, another form of treatment, but is the idea is that there are underlying needs, emotional needs related to that sensitivity. It's very similar that are not met for that child. Um, and therefore, it's like that ask that during that child experience, the child needed more attachment, connection, love, and, and did not have those needs met, um, and therefore uh, developed unhealthy ways to get their emotional needs met. That's a whole other thing, but I, I don't want to go into that. But basically, the answer to the question is it's bio, it's social, it's nature, um, and environment, and, and an individual that develops into these struggles and difficulties. Oh, it's partially, it's partially genetic, right? That's what you're saying. It's a combination. Yes. It's a combination of everything. Yes. But it's, yes. is, is it also, now, again, again. Clarify, is it possible, regular, normal upbringing, everything healthy, loving, content, no genetic, and they can develop it without that? So I'm gonna answer that very clearly. Anything is possible. There's no absolutes and obviously can happen is that there can be a very loving environment and there can be a trauma or some difficulty that happens. Or, you know, I, I'm just thinking, you know, could, could a child who uh, is right now a, a refugee and lost both his parents leaving Ukraine? I was thinking about this reading the news. I mean, could someone like that without genetics, you know, and just, be, you said, grow up normally? Um, it, it's not, I understand with it. It's not likely that someone who grew up in a loving, wholesome environment, even if they develop PTSD, and it does not struggle with emotion regulation, that they're gonna develop borderline personality disorder. Can it happen? Absolutely, it can happen. Has it happened? I'm sure it, it, it has happened. Um, and also in terms of the biosocial theory, you can have one of the bio and not the social, or you can have the social and not the bio. This is not Torah me Sinai, okay? But this is a theory that we see in terms of patterns in the research. Okay, amazing, Mathis. Let's go to the next live question. You're on. 
Hello? I'm on? Yes, you are. Hi, thank Hi. you. Um, so um, it's all this is really thought provoking and well put and but you realize you're talking to an open forum of people. And my yeah. question is well, oh, cool. sorry, I'm mute, I'm mute, sorry. You hear me? Hearing all these things about how they're in pain and all the, you know, you realize there are people who are suffering from parents that are borderline. You realize there are spouses suffering from people who are borderline. Um, and let's say, talk about just the violent temper or, you know, when a child hears that or a spouse hears that, they have this violent explosion. And you realize violent explosions come with beating, calling names and you keep telling and what's being told here is how much pain the person with borderline personality is in you know is very very dangerous to the the victim um it's just i i'm sitting here and i'm listening to this and i and i you know i i'm not the name that i'm not calling from my own phone and i'm a pretty popular minahelis in the east coast and I'm listening to this and I know that there are many people who are in a lot of pain because of people who have a lot of personality problems. And to a borderline person, they hear this and it just gives them more and more excuses. And they say, well, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. But really the victims are destroyed. They're, they're destroyed. Okay. I, I love your question. I appreciate you bringing it here. And what I'm gonna say to you is you're right. There's a lot of truth to what you're saying. And what I'm gonna say you're right about is, is I did not focus a lot on the pain of those in the environments. And we can spend a lot of time because it's super important that there's a lot of truth. I was really focusing on the criteria and what they're experiencing. I didn't really talk about the environment that much. Um, and so I am going to completely acknowledge that the pain is beyond. And a lot of the work I've done is just working with people who are, have a relationship with those people who aren't willing to get help. And the difficulty and struggle they live on a regular basis is, is really, really painful, and really difficult. At the same time, there's another part of your saying that I can't validate as 100%. Perhaps there is, there is a kernel of truth in there. What I can't validate 100% is that it's dangerous. Okay, and I can tell you this from loads of research and experience, but I could be wrong. And I know you have your experience as well. But I don't think sitting here and acknowledging and validating and helping understand that their pain is going to make them more dangerous and reinforce them to continue being explosive. I by no means will say that explosive behavior, hurting children or an environment is okay to the degree that is if a, my client calls me after they blew up and went ahead and you did something ineffective, I, I, there's a 24 hour rule. I will not engage or help them. I say, you, you could have called me before, but right now I can't respond. And they'll know this before because the, the harm is done. When you come next time, we could break down the behavior and address it. We could talk about repairs. Repairs is a very important part in terms of relationships and how to move forward. So it is very, very clear, but I don't think, and again, and I think the second part of you're saying, perhaps, even though there could be truth, is problematic to say, is that I am reinforcing them being more out of control and thinking it's okay. Now, with other disorders, perhaps, 
Um, generally, I can't tell you there aren't people who might feel that to a degree uh, that, oh, uh, but I, I don't think people are saying, oh, Matas Mill is basically saying we're in pain, so we can actually continue doing what we're doing. And we could hurt other people and make their lives miserable. So I'm going to say, I am absolutely not saying that. And get help now and figure out how to stop those behaviors. And I don't blame you for feeling that because you have all these characteristics and you might have all these emotional struggles, but there are tools and skills that you are responsible, even if your parents did not meet your needs. As we say, you are still responsible to fix your own problems and get help. So I, I, I want to again acknowledge that I did not talk about the pain on the other end because that's not what my focus was on, uh, but there is tremendous pain and, and problematic. And therefore it's very important for families that those who are struggling and those who are here listening and struggling that you do get help. Okay, so there, or there were questions. I wanna clarify the person who spoke before that should bring up a very valid point. And there were questions that did come in that hopefully we get to about family members and also self-care and how to deal with it. There's definitely, I think that was a very valid uh, point that the person brought up. Yes, um, very, very okay. valid. That person ready? Okay, Matis, you ready for the next question? Yep. Okay. Ready or not. Okay. You're on live. Let's go. Hi. Okay. I just, am I, can I be heard? You could be heard. Yes. yes. Yeah. So I was basically reiterating in a way what the previous, um, the previous commentator said that I felt that there was entirely a lot, a lot of sympathy and maybe deservedly so to some degree for the victimizer. Um, I'm a child of uh, a severely disordered parent um, who incidentally or not incidentally is a child Holocaust survivor as well. And I suspect there are many people here with parents who are Holocaust survivors and manifest a lot of these borderline behaviors. And I've been in years of therapy and from my understanding that some might be theories, but others are more substantiated, um, there is a lack of empathy. So I think the, the uh, borderline person in, um, manifests a lack of empathy. And there's also the black and white thing. So people are either bad or good, and you're only, they have very short emotional memory. So one is only as good as the last thing that they did. So I think, I, I just to reiterate, I think the sympathy needs to be very much with the sufferers. Um, only God knows what Bechira these people have, but for, there's definitely, at some point, one is scratching their head, and I've heard many people say, are they evil or are they sick? And we vacillate between the two, sick or evil, sick or evil. Um, so there's an incredible amount of destruction, suffering from those, from the ones who are family members of the borderline person. And the mere fact, and I think most of the people in this group who are listening here, I would warrant to say, are sufferers of relationships with borderlines. There may be if some, I think anyone who shows up here is probably borderline on the lower end of the continuum. And also there is a continuum, there are those that are more severe and act out more severely and those less severely. Like some just may be highly irritating and annoying and some are seriously abusive. So, um, Anyone who's here is already acknowledging, I would say they're on the lower continuum. Anyone who's here at this, at this seminar. At this yeah, I want to jump onto this question because I think it's tied into a little bit what these two both people are saying. But I'm going to read this question, okay? Because so maybe let's get some, they're all unvalidating yeah, everything. I want to I validate what they're saying because I kind right. of- I just, Actually, I just want to respond. I just sure, sure. Okay, just a couple of points that were brought up that were really important. Um, first of all, um, uh, black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking is very, very common. 
and those who struggle. Um, I, I was, listen, if I would give you here, I can give you a whole, uh, there, there are components and pieces that I'm not gonna pick up. So I just wanna acknowledge what the, uh, this individual said and thank you for bringing that up. There's a lot of all or nothing thinking there's also, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't define it as short-term memory. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I think it's because, again, that emotional intensity and, and that vacillating to extreme shift, which actually emotion affects cognition. Um, and also in terms of the moment, the emotion so powerful, whatever happened before, they totally, their emotions are taking them over. And therefore, cognitively, they, they, they're not in a center place where they can be aware of what happened in the past. As far as your last point, and we'll take the question, is um, I, I don't I didn't know exactly I, I understand it makes sense logically that most of the audience here is uh, family members and I, I want to say again even if they're family members I, I'm going to say this really clearly and I think I did but I'm going to say it again I, I was explaining the disorder the way I understand the disorder and and I I I wouldn't say these for the most part these people are evil I think that's judgment. I rather look at for everything that there are causes. At the same time, I started off saying that this is a very sensitive topic and very complex. And I did understand that I'm watching and counting every word that comes in my mouth because I do have to be careful because there is pain on both sides here that I cannot understand and perhaps have not experienced in the intensity. And I, again, for any of you who didn't hear this, I want where I, I am um, uh, apologizing if I was hurtful, I'm not apologizing for what I said, I was hurtful because if I invalidated uh, any of your pain in the process, because a lot of the points are coming forward are true. At the same time, when you are a victim, if you want to use that word, of someone who, a parent, and you suffer for so many years, and you are so emotional and pained and hurt beyond, when you hear someone be empathetic to those who have this disorder, that is painful. That is extremely painful. So you are going to experience a lot of emotion as a result of that, and it's going to be feel very invalidating and not caring. Though that's not exactly what, what's going on. I'm just trying to point a picture of the causes. The causes and understanding doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't mean that there doesn't have to be change. Doesn't mean that there's not problems. I just wanted to clarify that. I want to jump into this question because I feel like this ties into that a lot. And we got a few of these type of questions. Question concept is basically um, someone I'm related to has extreme levels of mood swings and anger outbursts. As a family member, whether it's a spouse, a child, whatever it is, what can I do to deal with these weekly crises and get the self-care that I need? So people that are, are experiencing, the people that are here tonight from, the, from that side, right? What could they do to get the self-help, the care that they need? And what should be for themselves that they survive, you know, what they're going through? I think that's very apropos for what they're asking. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, actually, as you said, I mentioned this in my work, in my book, this is a DBT concept, is there's only four ways. There could be lots of problems. We only have four options. So option one is to fix the problem. So obviously, if you can fix the problem, fix the problem. Now, fix the problem might be leaving a relationship. Fix the problem might be getting the person into therapy. Um, so, and, and a lot of times people make those choices. Sometimes that's, you know, your child, you don't have another family to pick up, uh, uh, you know, and, and buy a new, I, I always think of when I say that, the, uh, I think it was Shel Silverstein was his name, a famous poet. Uh, you know, he sent in the mail, the, the child sent in the mail, little Clarence for a new ma and pa. Um, but we can't do that necessarily. So uh, we can't just, uh, you know, fix the problem. If we can, number one, 
get that person into treatment. And it's not always an option if you're a child or it's a sibling or it's someone at work. But if there are ways, even not related to the main issues, even if you can get them to see another issue of some sort or be willing to, you go to therapy and they'll go to therapy to separate therapists, not couples therapy per se, or maybe start with couples therapy. That would be the first. The second is, is the other options are change how you feel about the problem. And that's changing your perspective and how you see and, and, and trying to do things to change your emotions uh, related to the problem. Third is acceptance. And fourth is to stay miserable and be in pain. Um, and many of us stay the fourth and get stuck in judgment, things like that. But I, I'll talk about that more, but I just wanted to throw out there as I go through this. So if you're in that situation, obviously the first thing is see if you can get help, professional help, because as the, the last two individuals clearly shared, the, envi the, the environment could be uh, chaotic, um, the explosive, it could be scary. Um, there can be explosive rage. There can be things that are limited and are under your control and therefore getting them into treatment to get help would be obviously the first thing you could do to respond in a situation like that. The other thing is, is, and this is, you know, more difficult. Okay. And that's why I was sort of giving you the other side of it is if you can learn yourself, because again, change is transactional. And I'm not saying, obviously, if they can get into treatment to get the skills they need, that would be the most effective way. But often that's not the case. And often changing the relationship is not the case. If I can learn tools and skills to be able to be more effective in my interactions with this person, that will actually be able to help those crisis situations. And that is skills such as regulating my own emotions, being more grounded myself, being able to listen and validate the truth in their perspective and their feelings using skills such as validation to help decrease the intensity of their emotion. Again, not valid, validating the invalid, validating what's valid or what they're fear, you're feeling, while balancing that with setting boundaries and limits. You know, Marshall Linehan has a uh, a um, phrase called fragilizing that many off people are like what you know being treating the individual as fragile because they're so scared of their emotions but really setting boundaries and limits clear consistent limits without anger um, are really really important into not reinforcing problematic behaviors getting your own self-care and support outside the relationship um, there are wonderful organizations like um, family connections where they actually have groups. I think some are, are run by from people where you can actually learn skills and tools to be able to deal that. So if they're in a rage or screaming or yelling, obviously if their emotions are too high, you're not gonna be able to engage them in that moment. But if you are going to get agitated or just run or feel for not keep yourself grounded, that will actually lead to a more difficult cycle if you're going at each other, because again, that just feeds into the emotional sensitivity. Rather than learning how to be grounded, using skills like accepting who they are and understanding that it won't necessarily look, again, how the relationship you would want it to look, learning how to validate, at the same time, keep very, very firm boundaries in the relationship. And it's really, you know, it would be easier. It's really, a, that's why needing, uh, going for some help also for that person to help them be able to navigate the balance in the relationship of being there, supportive at the same time, 
putting up those limits. And, and actually, there's a lot of what I talk about in my book in terms of parenting, um, the emotional sensitive child is finding that balance of truly loving and accepting the child, but also putting up those limits. There is a place for consequences. There are a place for, you know, uh, understanding, yes, we're going to be flexible, but we're going to be consistent and we're going to implement the, those. those uh, so with all that being said, that doesn't mean that's a magic. But when we get, choose four and we stay miserable and we just avoid and we're angry and we're bitter, that will likely lead to more suffering. Okay, let's go. There's so many questions here. We're going to be all night. What, right? I know, I know you're still falling asleep, but don't worry. We'll keep you up tonight. We're going to, we're going to punch you around a little bit. Okay, you're on. Okay, thanks so much. So I was wondering, just um, thank you for taking the question um, about the beginning when you're describing like what it is to have um, borderline personality disorder. So it sounds like some of these things could happen to someone just being in a traumatic situation. Like if, for example, like a spouse is like totally not acknowledging um, someone like the like their wife that they're cheating on them or something and they're just constantly doing that and then they become like the paranoid and they're calling them and being like insecure of abandonment and being like like they have proof like they're doing these things they know about it but can it make a person feel like just like a temporary feeling of almost like having borderline personalities or like all those things sounded like a little bit like they're going through the trauma they're going through all that stuff so I feel like just if it's possible to clarify like how extreme is it like the these symptoms of having borderline personalities or because I feel like someone can just go through a horrible situation they just feel like they're going crazy like having these outbursts or just like because they're having real anxiety that they know the person's like doing weird things they are not getting the acknowledgement so they're kind of going crazy because of it so Mattis, I think let me let me clarify the question let me if I understand yeah, it that's, that's good. Somebody, <laughs> somebody's dealing with somebody who's causing them to be so hurt that they're acting and they're doing the emotions of what a borderline trait would do, but isn't that normal? Because they're hurt, of course they're gonna scream and they yell, they're gonna be moody. Is that the question? Matos, is that was that? I think I, I think I understood the question. The question is, is sometimes people experience a lot of these criteria um, during certain circumstances. Does that mean that they have somewhat or they're on the continuum of BPD? And the answer is no. Um, and that's because you described very clearly there was, there was a, a, a specific identified trauma that you might have some post-traumatic stress disorder related or uh, PTSD related symptoms. Um, but when you're talking about this, this is more of a chronic issue and a chronic problem that goes over different domains in different areas, not a one identified uh, issue. So this is a character traits and personality that that is, you know, in, uh, social situations that can be family situation, work situations, or other non-interpersonal, interpersonal, or intrapersonal situations. That's that's chronic. If you're feeling some of these related to a specific situation and having some paranoia, first of all, it doesn't sound like paranoia. It sounds like uh, you you have there's mistrust, and there's mistrust for very good reason. Um, and trust has to be rebuilt in that relationship. I think most people would be mistrust. I think most people would have. I mean, we have emotions and our emotions, sometimes all of us, you know, you, even statistically it's fascinating. You know, people with panic attacks. You know, I think two, most, I think it's two to three panic attacks in their lifetime. And I was like, people have panic. People have high levels of stress. People have rage. People get into states of depression, but where it's chronic and it's affecting a few domains in their life, that's when we start seeing it as 
you know, uh, different disorders. So what you're describing does not sound to me that that would be even in the realm of BPD. Thank you, Mattis. Beautiful. Let's go to the next live question. You're on. Holy moly, Mr. Miller, you sound like a fascinating, uh, uh, well-spoken individual. I I'm questioning whether I have a borderline personality listening to you articulate at 150 miles an hour and processing uh, information overload with sensory difficulty. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm just going to reverse back to something you said about 20 minutes ago. Um, clearly, you're, you're going into the deep conscious aspect of, you know, of, of emotional regulation, chemi chemical regulation, et cetera. There's so many different factors that affect uh, behavior manifestations, negative and positive, conscious trauma, this and that. So I, I'm qualified. I'm, 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 I am qualified. I'm not going to qualify myself. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to ask an interesting question. You said before something about the addiction element, which is something that is relatively unknown um, in the in larger circles in general with the population. I've been down the road, and the difference is that when I'm addressing my difficulties with a professional, um, you're educated. You're educated on the practical concept and foundation of addiction, but having lived there and having having lived there and done that is is, is very 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 black and white. So you said something about. You know, there are those who can develop addictive habits or addictive patterns of behavior. <clears throat> so if there's going shopping, if you, if you speak to someone who goes shopping regularly, um, they may be doing out of habit, it's something they enjoy. And on, and on the other side, the flip side of their personal life, they're doing very well. They're stable, they're content, their life is functional, et cetera. But if you actually uncover um, going shopping, frequent, frequently shopping as often as some people do is not a normal, it's not normal, it's not a normal decorum of behavior. Doing something in excess beyond its intended use is not considered, um, it's not considered normalized behavior. Anything that you go beyond the normal is not, um, you know, is not framed as, as normalized, you know, uh, like I said, as normalized behavior. So um, there is, there is a, a very significant differentiation between the two of them. Um, if I use something, I use it and abuse it beyond its, as I said, specifically intended purpose. Um, do you believe in the idea that either some, either one can generate addictive patterns of behavior that turn into that turn into addiction in itself, versus versus someone who actually has gone there from, and the source being trauma or, um, you, you know, I guess chemical regulation, etc. That was really my, my. If you could just, can you just, I guess, essentially I, I address that that issue. Yeah, I need I need to clarify because I heard two different things in there and just clarify me. You know, when you were talking about norms in behavior, uh, perhaps societal or cultural norms, and whether someone is engaging in a behavior that might not be uh, be a misfit with what's the norm in their mini culture society, uh, does that define it as an addiction? And then I heard something about someone who has emotion dysregulation who ends up engaging in impulsive behaviors, can that lead to addiction? Did I get that right? Or am I missing something? No, that was, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm slightly anxious myself. It's the first time I'm on the year. So I think, I think you pretty much um, covered, covered that territory well. That was essentially what I was driving at. Okay. Okay. So, so as far as, uh, again, oh, Matis, I'm sorry, I'm not on the stack. Can you clarify the question clear? Yeah, I'm, I, if I, I, I can't say hundred percent with my answers, I'll clarify. And then uh, you guys will, you'll tell me if I, if I have a clear understanding is um, obviously, you know, being a therapist, you have to have a knowledge, knowledge of addictions. I have knowledge, I have training uh, of addictions. I am not 
addiction specialist, which means that's not what I'm doing all day. So I'm going to answer these questions, but I'm also going to say that uh, I'm not a specialist per se in this area. Um, I, I do. I would not define that as an addiction. Um, if if even if something is not out in the norm, is, is not within the norm, but if it's not causing impairment or there isn't dependency uh, or psychological or chemical dependency, um, even if it's not a norm, uh, because you know someone might say, uh, I support it, but if we think about you know, religion, for example, you know, they, they might say we're addicted to certain types of things that we like to do, like we're addicted to singing. We always have to sing everywhere we have to sing. <laughs> I don't know. But in another place, like that would not be the norm. People say like this person can't live without singing. Why are they always singing? Thank you, Hashem. I don't know. So so they, they, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't define that. You know, uh, listen, if that behavior is causing other people in your mini culture of society uh, pain or problem or something like that, you know, then then maybe you would want to look at it, not necessarily addiction. I also would say is you might say to yourself because people who have addictions uh, or dependency uh, claim to or engage in what we call permission beliefs, so they might say, well, this is really norm behavior. It's just not norm behavior for everyone else. So you have to be careful about that. But that's on the addiction piece of it. Um, as far as these other things, yes, absolutely. I think if someone self-soothes or deals or self-medicates or deals with emotional pain, I mean, that's why most people, vast majority who have serious addictions have histories of trauma. Um, not all, but many. Um, and that, that yeah, I mean, there's, there is a biological component to addiction too. I think there's a lot of research going on in that. But I, I do think if someone has emotions dysregulation and they're looking to other, those behaviors, they will become de dependent and that can develop into addiction. If that was your question, I, I would say the answer is yes. Yeah, that was, a, um, that was that, I guess that was the antithesis of my question. Uh, it was a little bit more deep rooted, but I'm not going to go into it because I my focus is more on addiction and recovery and trauma. Uh, but I, I do want to ask you something. Um, you, you also mentioned the idea of uh, something very important, which I learned in the recovery circle, which is never, ever addressed. Uh, it's the most powerful thing I ever heard through my experience and my own journey of addiction, which is that you talked about being a victim. And very often, if I have either chemical regulation or I've suffered from traumatic experiences in my past, which I did many, I walk around, you know, I guess enabling myself with the idea that I'm a victim and um, no one else understands my pain or my trauma, or my stress, anxiety. Um, and when you talk to people very often and you're feeling stressed about something, they say, it's okay, just relax, take it easy. And you're, what you're only doing is infusing, you're infuriating, you're elevating their, you know, their, you're spiking their adrenaline because really what, what I try to do, I focus on client-directed counseling, which is I want them to come forward. I want to validate them. I want to be compassionate, understanding that they, they have, you know, they, they have a mishap or there's some sort of uh, irregulation between their, you know, their 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 unconscious and conscious reaction. But I, I walked around for, you know, as a victim for 15 years until it was brought to my attention. The only one who ends up suffering at the end of the day, being a victim, whatever the whatever the case is, the call who brought it before about, um, you know, that. I'm, honest, like, I got a, I'm sorry, I can't knock you off, but I have like 10 other people and I want to okay, like, I'm sorry, I'm being clinical over here, but I want to move <laughs> on to the next one. Is that okay? Yep, sorry about that. Thanks for the time. No Thank you for your question. Okay, let's go to the next live question. Okay, hi. 
Oh, hi. Hi. Yes. Uh, this is sort of that kind of segue from the other questions. Everybody seems to have remember all the same wavelengths. But I, my experience with with borderlines, unfortunately, a family member, I, I don't know. You talk about different disorders. I don't know if people can have multiple problems that it's hard to confuse, you know, or the gentleman just said, you know, you're, you know, it could be addiction. It could be other things. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know. If, I, I just wondered any kind of extreme behavior um, would just be a sign. I, I hate to say to get out in a certain sense, because I, I think that these people tend to lose themselves in their emotions. Maybe that's the difference between just being angry. You talk about like suicide being a, a, a feature of, uh, a, you know, uh, prevalent among borderline. What about the opposite? We have homicide. God forbid, somebody takes the anger, you know, takes the anger to that, the rage to that extreme. Um, do you? I mean, do you think? Do you find that prevalent among these kind of people? That'd be very. I mean, there's dangerous, and then there's really dangerous. And some, you know, and I, I don't know to what, you know, to what extent this could be. You know, the victim, I mean, let alone just hang around, but can you really, is this kind of person, can even be redeemed in a certain sense? I, I, I don't know what, it, it sounds like the person has a lot of, you know, there's so many issues, this person, that'd be very, you know, I, I don't know how you would handle that situation of, of somebody of, of dangerous extremes. I, 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 again, I, I, I don't know. These questions are coming in. I, I probably would have to sit yeah. here and break down these questions. And I know, I know Ashi pretty well, and, and he's not going to want to spend too much time on this. So what I'm going to say yeah. to you is like this: I, I'm going to answer one of your questions. For the most part, yes, their explosive anger could be very, very harmful to other people to the degree of homicide, like an antisocial personality or. You know, I, I, in my experience and my understanding, and, and I, I haven't seen to that degree, uh, could, could it feel like they're about to kill you? Yes, I've had that in my office where people got up and screamed right in my face and uh, very scary. Um, but no, not, not homicidal, more, more uh, you know, suicidal than homicidal. I'll answer that. But yes, the, it is complex. There are many different disorders and people can have... It just you know, I want to I want to say something for everyone, actually, if I can, and this is just important. Um, you know, we we get caught on labels, um, and I, I think, you know, something I write in my book, which is one of my favorite lines, is a diagnosis tells us uh, what she has, not who she is, um, and and I think it, it's helpful for us clinicians so we can have a path for treatment, but it could also become a shortcut. Uh, instead of looking and stating and addressing the problem as labeling the problem. Um, so I think there can be a, a, a comorbidity of many diagnoses. Um, you know, someone can have homicidal and BPD traits, does that? We know there can be, they can have a severe addiction, certainly in BPD, that's actually quite common. Um, so uh, the, the, it's quite nuanced when we get into that. And I, I think getting into that might be a, a little bit too, Daca stick, as we say, for today. I, I don't know if I'm responding appropriately to the question. I no, uh, based on what I heard. This is perfect. Perfect. Okay, let's go to the next live question. You're on. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. yes. 
Okay, I'm gonna make my question short, sweet, and to the point. When I signed on here, I came because I thought I would get an iota of sympathy for being a victim of a parent of BPD. Um, and I heard what everyone else said, and I hear your side also. My question is, at which point does a person caught in the middle between the parent who has made them a victim for years and years and years, and now they have their own children and they're starting to see that that crazy parent, oh, sorry, no labeling, they started to see that parent with BPD affect their own children. At which point do you say, Adkan, enough time to cut off? Okay, so I'm gonna answer that. I, I wanna go back a second because I, 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 feel, I feel sad. I, I'm just being honest that, that, I, that I, people are feeling so invalidated, uh, especially that's something that's so important to me that people feel validated. I, I thought I clarified, uh, and, and maybe I didn't clarify, Ashi. I don't know. I, I clarified. I think what you said, I want to clarify what you said, okay? I want to clarify what you said, because everybody's clarifying something else. I think what you said is that because when you are hurt by somebody like this, and there is an iota of sympathy, understanding their pain, it's almost yeah. hurtful to the person to hear that. So yes. if, you, if, you, yeah. if you hear it aside and... Yes, yes. That's what it is. And I, I want to clarify, because I think you said it, obviously there's tremendous damage that's done yes. Yes. people and children and stuff. And we're not taking away from that. The point of this is to really understand their situation and what the people could do, self-help for themselves and for other people and to can help your children and to help going forward. So Matis, I'm sorry for answering the question, but you could- No, no, I, I, what you said. No, maybe I'm okay. But anyway, the question was an excellent question. I, I Let me just repeat it, make sure I understand. Matis, next year will be validating the, the borderline victim spouse. No, I could do it now. We could spend the rest of this year on it. I, I, I have no problem. I, you know, I, 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 again, I work with people like that and, and, and the, the pain is tremendous. Um, uh, and the words can't describe. As far as uh, labeling crazy, we can discuss that after. That's just in terms of being effective. But but let's let's talk about your real question, which I think was, um, at what point when you're in such a painful relationship do you cut off? Was that the question? Is that correct? Is that yes, yes. I want to I want to emphasize another thing. There's an organization that for parents, the people that that are cut off from their kids, and you know some of them do have personality disorders. So the question she's asking: At what point when you're seeing your your kids are being affected by by the parents or at what point is the cutoff point? You just you don't want your kids to get hurt. Is there is there a cutoff point? Is okay. it the right thing? Okay, so so I, I, I'm going to say it's a dialectic like any anything else. Of course, there's a point of cutoff. I mean, if someone's uh, threatening that the next time you walk it, you know, if you keep doing this, I'm going to kill you. Let's just use extreme person. You're not walking into that house again. Okay, uh, if if someone's actively doing something every time you talk to them that they're actively abusing you in horrible ways. Of course, there is a point. And the truth is, I am not the one to define that point. I think each individual has to explore and identify that point. I think to give guidelines, black and white, oh, that point, people treat like this, you break the relationship with parents. I think that's, that's a slippery soap and I think it's dangerous and I think it caused a lot of harm for a lot of people. And I'm not getting into that discussion now. Um, but I think each person has to do what's most effective for them and their families and their dynamics and the situation. I think very often it's not black and white, just like we talk about black and white thinking with borderline personality. It's not black and white, you know, either I have nothing to do with them or I'm going there all the time. Or, you know, there, there is often a balance. There are ways to put in limits and boundaries where you can pull back in many ways and protect yourself and be very, very assertive and clear in those boundaries 
at the same time, not completely cut the relationship off. But of course, there's a time to cut relationships off. And that's the first thing I said, is sometimes there's a time to change. There are people in marriages who actually decide they're going to leave, they're going to end that relationship, and no one can judge them. Because, you know, in their shoes, in their circumstances, in their situation, they may, even if someone else decides to stay, that's their decision. And each person has to explore the pros, the cons themselves, long-term, short-term. Some people want to work on it more. Some people don't. That's a choice they're going to make. So, of course, there's that time. And I would imagine it happens. It does. I would imagine. I've seen it happen many times where I see relationships end up being cut off and broken off. Um, and then I see people who really try. Um, and, you know, call a vote to them. I don't know if I would. Did I answer your question? Yeah, Matas was excellent. Let's go to the next live one. Okay, you're on. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, what seems to be a characteristic of people with uh, BPD, which seems to stand out from others with mental health issues, is their lack of self-awareness. Like they, they can go through marriages, they're estranged from their entire families and all their friends, and they can be told by everyone around them, professionals, family, and friends, that they need to go for help. And the reaction is that they're they're not the one that has the issue. Everyone around, like everyone around them, is the problem. So, if this is a characteristic of BPD, then are we saying they're they're not to be blamed because of their mental illness? Okay. So let me let me clarify something. Okay, blaming in general, and I hope you guys can all hear this. Blaming doesn't create change. Blaming helps us feel better. Maybe it's self-validating to blame and to, to judge and to blame, and we all do it, and we all do it for that reason. If you want to ask, is blaming bringing towards change in within ourselves or within other people? No. Very often we get stuck in judgment and blame because it has certain advantages for us. So the answer, it's not about, uh, you know, isn't there a time to blame and not time to blame? As far as what you're talking about in terms of characteristic of someone with BPD, is, is very often, as I mentioned to you, um, and this is, I'm looking at causes. See, I think what many people here are struggling, if you haven't read my work, I actually would, even seeing my parenting class when I go through the whole thing is, is people can understand is that when I say no blame or no judgment, they're equating that with approval and okay. When one has nothing to do with another. That doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean that there's tremendous harm because we're not blaming, we're saying it's okay that we're allowing, we're approving, we're condoning. It's not what it's saying. It's just letting go of blame and judgment because it has negative consequences on the ability to make change, the ability to accept, and the ability for us to regulate our own emotions when we don't get stuck in blame. With that point, I want to validate, it is a very hard, because I've seen this, I get these calls all the time. How do I get this person in therapy? They need help and they're refusing to go. Now, if you want to know cause of that characteristic, I could cause doesn't mean it's okay. I would have to identify the cause and address the cause is that often that doesn't mean it's okay, is often because for them to take that responsibility or acknowledge that this is, you know, there's stuff that they have to do, yeah, as I tell you, it's much easier to shift their focus on everyone else than shift the focus on themselves. And it is a, a, a very, very emotionally sensitive and, and difficult. Does that mean it's okay? I didn't say that means it's okay. That means we have to figure out how to get, address that cause. And that's why we have treatment. Even if I get them in for one session and they're sitting there, I, I say, just get them in one. Hopefully using my skills and techniques, I can get them to see 
validate their pain and suffering to decrease the intensity of the emotion to come to awareness that their goals, their lifetime goals are being hurt because they are having difficulty dealing with their own emotions and behaviors and thought patterns. Just, I just want to stop for a second. I'm just wondering, I see that the audience is, you know, knocking you down. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. I have to, the audience is in, in, in pain. They're not knocking my, me down. My question is for them. Let's talk to them for a few minutes. At the end of the day, they're, they're having a very hard time in their situation, relationship, and they don't want to hear what you're saying tonight. They don't want they, they we don't have they don't have time they're in pain and 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 it's it's real chaotic situation so talking to such a person how can we help them when they are in that situation when they can't hear what you're saying tonight yes once they're in the real room and once things calm down and you explain the dialectic understand both sides and understand where everybody's coming from beautiful but we need to realize where everybody is before that, and they want to run. What do we tell them? Validate, self-validate. To understand, just like the other side, you, you have to self-validate. Again, that doesn't have, that's why I'm saying the judgment is self-validate. This, this is really, 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 really painful and really hard, and I'm not there yet. I'm not, a, I've been going through so much pain and been hurt so many times and been so scared and my life's been in turmoil and these are consequences of what's going on in the environment. I'm not ready in a place, I'm not there yet. I wanna be there perhaps. I wanna be able to try to feel, see how I can be, um, you know, get to under, be more understanding. That doesn't mean saying that it's okay, but right now the pain is very raw and they need to self-validate and work through their own emotions to be able to, and the really is, is even what I've been trying to do since this process is to, to really to acknowledge and, and to validate that idea. You know, sometimes, you know, and, and this is where, this is interesting. I think everyone would appreciate this. Like, you know, someone want, you know, even if you have someone there, you want me to, they want me to say, that person is crazy. They're psychopathic. Are they nuts? Are they, they seriously did that to you? You know, these people should be locked up. Not only should be locked up, there should be a separate organization. You should cut off that relationship right now. You should even walk back in the house. This is just not okay. Now, again, I, 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 again, it, it feels good in the moment. I could accomplish that, and I do. I strongly validate, but I don't use that language and a judgment. And I'm not going to get into all that right now because why we don't use labels and judgment. Because, it, again, as I said, it doesn't lead to exchange. At the same time, I can validate, but they want me to say the person is retarded. Now, I'm not going to use that language because that's their evaluation and label of what is, where I'm going to rather focus on the terrible cause that these children are suffering for their entire lives because their parent who's not getting help um, or, you know, or vice versa, and how that has hurt their uh, spouse and their children and every yuntif is, is, is horrible. And if they don't make the person perfectly happy in the middle of a simcha, there was a huge explosion. It, it, you know, again, every single move, they can't do anything right. I will go into that with them. But I think that's a little bit of my uh, assessment of a little bit of that struggle. But I think you need to self-validate and acknowledge that emotion so that you can feel understood and get validation from others, which I'm 
trying to give you guys. I want to get into the healing part where people could get help and how they, there is a positive and it's not the, the dark, you know, um, we have so many questions. I have my whole top of the screen is lit up with hands up. So we definitely have a lot of questions. I'm going to try to cover a few more, but I want to get to some of the healing parts also. I think that's very, very important. Okay. Okay. You're on. Okay. Hi. So I have four short to the point questions that actually each build upon the next. So that's my little intro. So question number one is, what about someone who's married to someone with BPD, who is um, in, in his black and white thinking, fear of uh, abandonment and controlling, so on and so forth, won't allow anybody in his vicinity to get help. So his spouse is very willing to go get herself help and, and let you know her spouse lead her BPD life as long as she knows how to deal with it, but she can't even get help. That's number one. To that person, so what 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 can she do? To that person who is on the call tonight, can you please give some very practical tools for her to walk away with living with a BPD spouse? That's question number two. Question okay, number wait, wait, three I, I is. Just, oh, I'm sorry, let, let me clarify. I just want to clarify. Um, yes. Your thing is that someone is married to an individual with BPD. Um, yes. Perhaps other sounds like perhaps some other uh, pieces as well, but let's say, and that person is refusing to allow other people in the house to get help. Yes. Okay. What practically could they do in order to address that idea that they're not getting help? What can they do to address that idea? Is there a way around this? What advice would you have for somebody, somebody like that? There is obviously a very strong need for intervention, the situation the way it is right now is unbearable. Um, that's number one. And number two is besides for that um, more global issue, would you have some specific tools for a spouse of somebody with borderline personality disorder, fear of abandonment, anger management issues, um, lots of controlling, so on and so forth? That's the, that's the second question. The third question is, um, how does parent number, you know, healthy spouse number two. Yeah, um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to answer one at a time. Okay, sure. <laughs> it's gonna be a little overload for me. Okay, uh, so let's stop right there for now. Okay, okay. So the first question, I, I, unfortunately, this is such an unfortunate reality. Um, here it's even even worse because the, the person is actually controlling their environment. Uh, and Controlling and, the environment and the money, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, again, that that's, that's, sounds a little bit, I don't want to just put that in the category of BPD, because that sounds, uh, again, based on what you're reporting, is that they're using certain means as a way of control, which is uh, goes under the category of uh, direct abuse, um, you know, uh, thought out, uh, not uh, I'm dysregulated, I'm explosive, but I'm trying to keep my environment. Now, is that coming from a frantic fear of abandonment? I don't know. I mean, I, again, I don't know the case and I assess. So this question comes all the time and it's really, really complicated. Um, you know, sometimes if it's someone who's so controlling or maybe even has some narcissistic tendencies, uh, to be honest, short of leverage, there's they're, they're really hard to, to make change. Now, of course, there are many things, again, breaking down the case practically. Could someone find someone who this person trusts? Now, I got, I got people say, they don't trust anyone. No rabbi, no this, no that. There's no one they'll listen to. I'm saying in your case, if there is someone that person will listen to, um, then, you know, I, I think it's best to get 
whether it's a friend or a rabbi or someone, a rav who can get involved and uh, try to help uh, at least explain that you know the, the spouse has a right. I mean, of course, to 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 get help, you can't control that. The other thing is obviously they can go for help behind their back. Now you're saying obviously that's a risk. Okay, I don't know what type of abuse and what type of danger this person is. Like I don't know if they're going to actually physically or emotionally uh, harm them. You know, and that the potential danger is so significant that if they find that they're going to therapy, uh, you know, of course they have the option of ending the relationship, but, but clearly they want to stay in the relationship. Um, what, what I mean, things if it's such a degree of control, there has to be some motivating factor or leverage. So as I said before. Maybe he's maybe they're even willing to go together uh, to one session or on on that person's terms. Meaning, if there's anything that can be effective to get him into the door or her into the door to to do some therapy. When I say leverage, is you know if they say basically the person says if if we if we don't go for help or I can't go for help, I cannot continue this relationship. I mean, again, uh, they have to have the right support or backing. Um, or having maybe other family members get involved who are very strong, who can stand up for that person if that person is having difficulty standing up for themselves. Now, that's going to be a rocky boat, but you know what? It sounds like it's a pretty um, devastating, to say the least, situation um, that's going on. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just trying to find the right avenue to get them into the door to get help, um, which, is, which is really really challenging. So I don't, I don't have a magic answer. I wish I did. Um, there's not like, and I, I, I think if anyone tells you, you know, it's not true. Cause we know, I guess we're dealing with very, very difficult and complex personalities. You're not like going to say, Oh, say this line and use this skill. And then they're going to pop. So, Oh, sure. Go to therapy and I'll pay for as much as you want. I mean, that's not, that's not the real, you know, the, the, the reality of the situation. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to be, to, to be mindful of that. Um, you're asking about tools that this person can use. Um, I, I think, and I've seen that many, uh, you know, spouses, as I mentioned, um, you know, going through, again, you're saying they're not going to get, they can't get their own treatment. So I don't know how they're getting skills or tools, you know, you to expect here for me to start doing skills training. I, I don't, I don't think it's the setting or the environment. Um, you know, if you had a specific interaction, say, what skill can I use in this situation? Would be what's not every skill is going to be effective. But I can make a suggestion, uh, but uh, you know, short of that, I mean, you want to know. Matters, I mean, DBT therapy, knowledge, listening, reading books on it—that's that's very helpful, though. No? Yeah, there's there's there are there's lots of as I mentioned, uh, there's there's family connections. Um, there are there are some self help books. There are um, about going to oh, your own therapy or somebody that understands. You know, no, right, right. It was, they, this person can't go to therapy. That's the issue. Oh, right, 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 right. But but yeah, there there is a lot of self help material. Um, I know there's a, a great show, uh, Coach Menachem and uh, Ashi Parnas, that they give loads of great. You might material. have to wait a year till we get to that topic. <laughs> um, but but there there there's there's stuff out there. Um, there there's self help. Um, you know, there, there's, there's great books. I mean, uh, again, if someone is uh, there, uh, if you want me to send you a list, actually, I don't mind of self-help books when you have a spouse with a personality disorder or a spouse with uh, narcissism. There's a book called Disarming the Narcissist by Wendy Bahari. Uh, it was a very, very, uh, I actually- will let her, you buy the book on Amazon, so it might be a problem. I'm sorry? Oh, you won't let her buy the book on Amazon. 
Yeah, but that 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 might be a help book. Is learning to love someone's borderline personality disorder uh, by Sherry Manning. I believe this is a great book. Um, you know, there there is information. There's lots of uh, websites and um, where they can learn different skills. I, I I think really the mindset in a situation that I like to help people is to try to figure out the most effective uh, approach, understanding the dynamics and meeting their goals. Um, but I, I have to conclude, it sounds like a very, 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 very difficult situation um, that the person is in. Um, and, I, you know, it, it's... it's the, there's a lot more questions. I, just, I know it's late. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for cutting you off. I want to just jump a couple more. We might have to send Leil Lachem. Okay, Mathis, can we go further? We have so many more. Go, 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 go. Okay, but I, I, we, we got to reserve. We got to keep at least a 10, 20 minutes for the healing part. I feel that's like the, okay. you know what I mean? Yes. Okay, let's go. You're on live. Next live question. Okay, um, I want to know if trauma can cause BPD. And if yes, what type of trauma could make it the most complicated? I mean, I could say that I have um, uh, BPD, but I think that because I was, I lived with narcissistic parents. There you so go. I want to know, like, like, what's the difference between the two? And what trauma, other than living with narcissistic parents, what's like other trauma that like can make well, it the most complicated? Because you said before there are traumas that make it the most complicated. So which trauma makes it the most complicated? Well, I think complex childhood trauma, what you're describing, um, you know, is when you're uh, in an unhealthy family environment um, is the type of uh, childhood trauma. Usually not, not like... Um, you know, if someone was in a terrible accident or had a medical illness or, um, you know, they were uh, a certain, like an incident of a, a rape or something like that, I, I wouldn't say that would generally uh, develop a BPD. But um, yes, growing up in a, in a, a, uh, a family where uh, with parents who have a, a parent with a personality disorder, parents with a person, two parents, or one that's enabling uh, uh, you know, a personality disorder um, uh, that that can that type of trauma can likely uh, create uh, lead to symptoms and, and meeting criteria of BPD. And what about sexual abuse? Um, again, I, I don't know all the research offhand, and I'm going to tell you based on my knowledge and and, and my experience. Um, I I know many people who have I've treated people with who had sexual abuse. But I, I would I wouldn't see that necessarily as the standalone event that would have led to BPD. But if I could see it happening, repeated sexual, I mean, I could see that if the you know the person is it could lead to feelings of emptiness and feeling abandoned and isolated and misunderstood and 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 not being able to learn how to regulate their emotions or share their feelings. So repeated things like sexual abuse. I can see that can possibly develop on its own to BPD. Uh, yeah, um, it's a definitely a possibility. Okay, um, Mathis, let's go to one more live, and, and I just want to cover some of some of the stuff. Like just people just keep on asking. Okay, you're on. Hello. There are minutes. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, a general question. Um, is there a way to know when uh, fear of abandonment and anger sees being within the range of normal and start 
uh, entering the threshold of BPD. And another question is, is there such a thing as BPD behaviors that that's just behavior and it doesn't fit the category of being called a disorder? Okay, so first of all, in terms of disorder, again, if you wanna get into labels, someone can have traits um, and, and you can address traits and the, the same treatments that we can use can help. But the criteria is very clear. If you wanna talk about meeting criteria, you have to have five of nine. So you either have it or you don't, or you might have traits of some. But your question was about, um, I think you were asked about the, the fear of abandonment. Um, again, even if it's just a fear of how do you know when it's normal, it's not normal. Um, could you give me an example of what, I think that would be helpful for the crowd than me giving these vague generally. Tell me something that you're, would be a question for you. Is that considered a normal fear of abandonment? Panicking when, when a spouse doesn't answer a phone for 10, 20, 30, or some minutes, or sometimes an hour frequently. Okay. okay. So again, this really takes the assessment of a clinician. You know, that could be just separation anxiety, where someone has generalized anxiety, um, or they have a, a, you know, a real strong belief of vulnerability to harm, and therefore they get really, really anxious when they don't hear from someone. It's not like something happened, it's something bad. You know, is it that, or is it, you're gonna leave me, you don't like me. Why are you calling me? Who else are you talking to? Don't you know I'm more the most important? You know, are you upset at me? If the person consistently does that, so I, I'm just highlighting it. It really takes an assessment to understand, you know, why why is that anxiety? Why is that person upset? And again, is it chronic? Is it all the time? Is it a late at night? Is it you know the person's going through a rough time then? You know, they're they're grieving and they just lost some you know a parent or a sibling and therefore they're 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 more emotionally needy at that point. There, there are a lot of pieces to be able to assess those. And I think that would be necessary. As far as the anger too, I mean, people have anger management issues that have nothing to do with BPD, right? It's a, a criteria with a bunch of other criteria, this pervasive pattern of motion dysregulation and all those components together. But people can have anger that's not necessarily associated with borderline personality disorder that also needs help and is very serious. So um, a behavior standalone doesn't necessarily, you know, can be part of something else um, or just a standalone difficulty with anger. Okay, Mathis, Maridik, let's go to the next live question. You're on. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, the question that I have is what's the treatment for BPD? And it could it be like, healed through um, therapy or even just li living with um, a person with compassion and acceptance and, you know, just having support in life, uh, could that help also that the person doesn't, I don't know, I'm trying to understand, like, is it a statement, that's it, this is the person or what? what's the recovery and yes. if the person can heal? That's a, that's a great question. I just want to emphasize that we got a few emails actually from somebody for themselves. They wrote, I've been suffering for years with BPD, have multiple therapists, each one ending in disaster. Please advise us to any real effective treatments. What is the, what's the, what is the, the hope? So, uh, yeah, I think that question makes Ashi happy because that's seg seg segue right into the healing process and understanding. Right. Uh, so that's great. Thank you for the question. Um, 
So with treatment, which we'll talk about some of the treatments, actually overall good. Um, many people do get better with effective uh, treatments, which I'll talk about, um, but they still struggle. And that's your other question, like long-term functional recovery, it's difficult, it could take years. Um, so with relationships and jobs, it could still be years, but a lot of like the severe dysregulation or the suicide ideation or the constant feelings of abandonment or the paranoia or, you know, a lot of that could be decreased with effective treatment significantly if someone, not every, not everyone, but the, the, there is some good research. Obviously for things like someone mentioned substance abuse, if there's history of trauma, um, then, you know, which 30, as I mentioned, 50%, that makes treatment a lot more complex because there's a lot of childhood trauma and difficulties. Then it's, again, there's treatments which we'll talk about. Um, but the troubling symptoms usually remit within the first few years. I, do, I also remember coming across a fascinating study a few years ago followed up on it, but actually with age, um, symptoms decrease. I'm not saying that's with everyone, but actually with age, a lot of the symptoms do actually decrease on their own. Um, but the underlying personality traits, these are characters, the personality that are so long, it does take a long time. So if someone says, oh yeah, they go to a good therapist for a year that will address it. Most cases it will help, but it's not enough in itself. Um, so uh, as I talk, that's in terms of prognosis. So there's some great treatments actually. So, let's talk about a couple of those treatments. So the first is DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. Many, many people know about DBT. Um, that's a, a treatment that I'm intensively trained in as well. Um, and it, it is the treatment of choice to many aspects to this, um, this, uh, this disorder. And really uh, DBT is an intensive therapy um, and it's completely. You might explain the difference between regular conventional CBT therapy and DBT and why is it so effective? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, CBT, as I like to say, DBT is a cousin of CBT. They're actually related. Um, the first book that was of dialectical behavioral therapy that was written by Marshall Linehan was Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Borderline Personality Disorder. Um, later, uh, it took on the name uh, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Um, how DBT and CBT different, uh, DBT is a more behavioral treatment. Uh, it's very, very focused on behavior and analyzing behavior in the moment and skills acquisition, um, understanding theory, but not really addressing uh, much of the um, uh, childhood history uh, or, or focusing on those other pieces significantly. Um, and, uh, but what, what DBT added, so it's not as cognitive, even though cognitive, there is a cognitive piece into it. It added a few components. First is core mindfulness. And mindfulness is shown to be extremely effective and it's taught consistently in DBT is really because it really helps with individuals who struggle with DBT to experience their emotions and to help them get centered and grounded and regulated and also to become more aware of their environment, aware of themselves and learn how to get untangled. You know, we talked about the black and white thinking. It helps them broaden their perspective. And that's also where dialectics came in because in DBT brought this concept of uh, that there can be two ideas that can both be opposite or peer opposite and both be true. Opposites can both be true at the same time, which is, as I talk about in my book, in terms of parenting, obviously, uh, and this is a 
the whole world is built on opposites, but the, the core opposite of DBT is acceptance and change. Uh, it's helping the individual learn to accept themselves for their emotional struggles, that we learn to accept themselves, not to judge and blame, because what they actually start to do is all the people in their environment, understandably so I validate why they do, I try to do that today, they internalize those critical voices towards themselves and they don't. They feel a lot of remorse and guilt as opposed to a, someone struggling with narcissism does not feel that. But when one can get in touch with, often they do feel that. But accepting and working on change at the same time. If I'm accepting, I'm not changing. If I'm changing, I'm not accepting. That's why I was trying to point out before that just because you accept, that doesn't mean you, need to, you don't need to balance that with change. So what DBT brought in is uh, components of treatment is building motivation, which we talked a lot about. A lot of these, there's a pre-treatment uh, phase to get them to really commit to the work. And we have strategies and pre-treatment strategies to orient them and get them to commitment. Two is skills acquisition. They don't have the skills to be effective in their relationships or the skills to regulate their emotions or the skills to be more mindful or the skills to tolerate distress, high levels of distress without creating more harm in the anger outbursts. And also, how do they generalize it? It's great in the therapy room. How do they get it out there in the home, in the problematic environments? And also, a lot of therapists were burning out because uh, this is hard treatment. As I said, you know, it's easy for me to say I'm, I'm in the therapy room with them. You know, I, don't, I, I'm, I get an hour, right? Uh, and, and you're living there with them, with those individuals who are struggling and, and, and creating, it creates such problems. So in DBT, there's something, there's individual therapy there's skills training where they actually learn different skills. There's phone coaching where we actually guide them in the moment to actually how to use those skills. And the therapists are in consultation and treatment as well. And there are certain targets that we target in stages of we first the severe behavioral discontrol, then we move to that quiet desperation, that internal pain, and learn to experience and deal with emotions, then problems with living, and then stage four incompleteness, helping them feel more complete. Now, we actually target in terms of life-threatening behaviors. We, and that's another thing Marshall and Ann brought into DBT is addressing suicidality, life-threatening behaviors, cutting, harm. We stop. These behaviors are, are, are primary uh, because that gets in the way. And then there's therapy interfering behaviors, the person coming late to therapy or the person not following through or doing that therapy homework, that we actually address that before we do the therapy because if they're not going to do the therapy, then we're not going to get anywhere. So those are things that we address. And then we go to quality of life issues. And our goal is we want to increase mindfulness and interpersonal effectiveness, motion regulation, distress tolerance, while uh, you know, um, you know, increasing those skills, addressing things. And, and the deeper ends of the treatment are there are certain dilemmas, dialectical dilemmas that we try to help the person move away from the extremes. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an evidence-based treatment that's structured, that's focused, it's goal-oriented, but it's very, it's very behavioral, but we help people learn to experience and regulate emotion and improve their relationships. And I've been doing DBT skills training groups for way over a decade. Um, some people, even individual therapy, respond really well and they change their lives. Some people respond somewhat. Some people aren't ready or don't do it at all. So it really depends on that. So that's a really effective treatment. However, I feel often for the later stages, although DBT for analyzing skill acquisition and regulation are important, but I find that that quiet desperation of that complex trauma that many have, DBT on this is not always enough. 
And that's why a lot of my training has, uh, I've uh, given a lot of attention to something called schema therapy, which is another type of therapy, which actually incorporates CBT attachment theory, gestalt therapy, psychodynamic perspectives, in really helping conceptualize that, that, these indi that individuals who struggle with these personality disorders have uh, developed these maladaptive schemas which are defined as these self-defeating dysfunctional patterns of thinking, thoughts, emotions, behaviors that usually start through childhood. So those things can be like, schemas can be def uh, defectiveness schemas, failure schemas, entitlement schemas, certain uh, emotions and thoughts and beliefs that lead to behavior. Um, and we use, what we actually found is with personality, someone can have many of these schemas at once and they go into modes. Some people know in terms of other work as parts work, it's similar to parts work, but we actually identify childhood modes and we use experiential strategies to go deeper back into the past and actually through imagery, chair technique, rescripting technique, go back and make cognitive change by going and trying to meet the needs of the child, that vulnerable child who's in pain and bypass the, the, the modes that are getting in the way and actually meet those needs and those emotional needs and help develop and strengthen the healthy part of self. It's complicated treatment, it's long-term treatment, it's very effective. And there's a lot more emotion, it's a very deep. So we're not working so cognitive because cognitive is limited. We're looking much more emotional, experiential. Um, and, and it's very, very, very positive. Because for example, a lot of them are struggling with a very punitive mode. They're very self-punitive towards themselves, or they're an angry, impulsive child, um, and and you know demands everyone fix their situation or tries to um, change by self-gratification. So we go back and we try to address these and link it to the present. So I don't get stuck in because I link it to the present to behavior and emotion in the present. It's another form. There are other forms of treatment similar as IFS, there's EMDR, there's prolonged exposure treatment. Well, these are other treatments that can be go in together to address other aspects of the trauma work. Um, and, and a lot of my, my parenting work actually was based on this is my master class really focused on helping parents address the needs of an emotionally sensitive child to help them so they don't develop these core maladaptive schemas and give them DBT-based skills to help the child and interact with the child and understand the child, to help them regulate the emotion, to decrease the likelihood of that they're going to struggle long term. Madis, unbelievable. Okay, let's go to closing. I just want to tell everybody that's that's been texting me and does. I could be up all night with the questions here. I, I just so much to do. So um, I'm sorry for the question we didn't get to. Um, we're going to go to closing now. Matas, before you go to closing, I would like you now for two minutes before we get there, give you two minutes for prep. Just to begin with closing, I'm asking for two closings tonight. One for the closing to the people that do have the borderline, people that feel they have the tendencies, that chizik, that, that, that what we're trying to really accomplish with the share tonight in a capsule. And then uh, at the same time, for the people that, that feel hurt and feel invalidated, that feel all this trauma that they felt throughout the years and all the suffering, which we understand, give them that, their own personal closing and how they can get the self-care and the help to move forward with it and not live in that hurts, you know, almost so, I, I'm gonna say it, I mean, forgive me for saying it, but like the pain is so hard that even when we talk a little bit to try to give the positivity and the healing part, it, it hurts too much even to hear it. That's how much the pain 
that they're in, rightfully so. Nothing. Yeah, 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 and it is rightfully so. And I want to obviously. Amazing to see it. I'm actually, I'm actually amazed to see it. I'm, I'm on the dialectic, so I started on the other side. So now I'm going to start. I'm going to move on the other extreme, and I'm going to start with first. Uh, no, no, let me let me go to closing. So I'm going to give you two minutes to prepare, and I'm going to I'm going to go to the closing. I'm going to say a bunch of stuff. Okay. Oh, oh okay. And also, uh, Ashi, can I? Uh, I, I also want to mention that I offered uh, a special. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get to everything. I got it all. Okay. So again, a big thank you to Matas Gold for coming on tonight. I thought tonight's year, Menachem. I don't know about you. I know it was a lot of this. But it was one of the best year that we ever had here. I got three emails from people. One person was a therapist who was married to a person. They said this was one of the best presentations that they've ever seen. I'm just letting you know. Wow. And I thought it was very helpful. I thought it was the crowd took their own agenda out of it, but it was amazing, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you for coming on and being mechazik. I think from this we learned tonight we have to do a, a different segment just for the people dealing with it. I think that we have to really break that up, and it's important to really validate. Again, tonight's share was sponsored by Fresh Start. If um, I just want to read what they are. Fresh Start is to deepen your healing trauma. Fresh Start is an intensive seven-day retreat designed for men and women who want to understand the process of healing from unresolved trauma, neglect, and abuse. It's in Detroit. It's a beautiful place. I personally, I've seen it, and it's a really an amazing place. Describe our participa participants as life-transforming, an oasis of healing. The Fresh Start Retreat is the first of its kind. Guidance, it's under the guidance and leadership of world-renowned trauma experts, licensed clinical therapists, doctors, robotum, combined for proven treatment principles, authentic Torah values. Um, they just told me that they texted me before the year that um, they have uh, next Sunday, March 27th, one opening for a women's retreat. So anybody who has any interest, you can go to their website. It's fsrc.com. You can call what's up them at 248-301-9997. I know them very well. Yochanan's a great guy, and he's uh, really doing amazing work there. So anybody that's interested. And I'm actually going to go back to the gematria, Matis. I think after tonight's shir, we can learn that you need a koyach ha-meyuchad. You need a special koyach, shir 96, to deal with it and to, to go through it. So much shem, it should be the chizik for them. And again, if anybody's interested in joining our Sunday WhatsApp, every Sunday I send out the flyers, please WhatsApp me at 848-525-0066. And um, I'll send you every Sunday the flyer. You can go to menachembernfeld.com, sign up every week to his emails, where you're going to send out all the links to everything we discussed. Menachem, you have a whole list of links to send out. And I'm um, going to recap of the year and all Matis's books and suggestions where to go from here. So please, I think it's, it's definitely valuable to sign up for the emails. Again, if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night at 9.30, we start uh, either with Rabbanim, a therapist, and it's really been unbelievable. What's a sheer 96? I'm still blown away by that. And we're going to go strong, and we have big stuff coming. Next week, sheer 97, we have our first business, successful business. No, not the first one. We had a few, but he's a real businessman. Gadali Fenster from Miami, Florida, is, and he's going to, he's, he's breastless. He's very into Nachman's for him. He's, he, he takes it out, and he's, he's like, I, I call him the Jewish Tony Robbins, but you can say whatever you want. And he's going to teach us practical tools how to let go and get all the energy back. All the people that were here tonight think you definitely could apply that to learn to let go and get some internal energy back to grow from it. Um, should it be a very deep program? And please, please join us. It should be unbelievable. Again, for the therapists watching, uh, we're now now you can get CE credits for mental health professionals. Many of the classes are given by mental health therapists such as Matis. And if you're a professional therapist and you need to get CE credits where applicable, we're proud that we partnered with Core Wellness, it's a national CE provider. Gives you live credits for those that are here and also for the recorded stuff. If you have any questions, go to the website. It's corewellceu.com slash, um, slash get real. Or you can email them for any questions at support at corewellceu.com. So please reach out to them. Um, again, everything is recorded with uh, menachemberfel.com. If anybody has any questions, please email them at coachmenachem.com. 
Matas, do you want to give out your website? Um, yeah, yeah. So my website is uncontrollabletrial.com. I am doing a special just for the next week and a half. I did not ever, I have this, uh, the course, the Uncontrollable Child, the master class for, for parents, and it could actually be helpful for anyone. It's a 10-part series, 10 hours. It's an automated series, so you can watch it again and again. Um, it's balancing extremes and becoming more flexible thinkers, accepting your child and your challenges, learning mindfulness, how to be present in parenting, regulate emotions, improve communication, let go of judgmentalness, validation, specific strategies, very, very practical shaping, uh, uh, shaping behaviors, reinforcement, rewards, pr praise, charts, how to decrease child's problematic behaviors, maintaining limits, implementing limits, balancing the needs of an uncontrollable child and your family. Um, I've gotten wonderful feedback on this course. Um, and with code, you have to put in the code, Coach M till the beginning of next month, it's 50% off my launch special price. I don't know if I will ever do this again in terms of the, the decrease, but I thought here's a one time to try to get my get it out there a little bit more to this audience. Um, so if you do it immediately, uh, you will have that opportunity to, uh, to, to do that. Um, so that's Coach M. And the, the website is um, uh, www.theuncontrollablechild.com. And you could see right there, you just click on masterclass, or you can go to uh, masterclassparent.theuncontrollablechild.com. Okay, okay, that's as far second, as that. Second. Now, again, tonight's share, share 96, and it'll be recorded by Shem if anyone wants to listen on the phone. We have a number at 848-777-GROW. With Shem tomorrow, you can listen to tonight's share on the phone. Again, thank you to all the advertising sponsors, Lakewood Scoop, Chazak, Chayla Kalkin, Shmuel Summer. And we're going to go to closing. Again, I'm going to say my closing again. The Menachem, the new Matas. Need a strong closing today. We need double closing from you. Okay. Again, Matis, I want to say I, I think this is one of the best presentations that we've had, and I think it was powerful. It was telling, and we uh, got to do session four. Uh, <laughs> thank you again for your time. I know you're knocked out. We always yes, beat you up. Matis, you always come up. We always not. I always knock you up. <laughs> like yeah, like two days. My poor clients tomorrow, right? <laughs> you okay. To you have to cancel. Okay, Menachem, Coach Menachem, let's go. Thank you very much, Matis. I think it was great. Now before. We continue, I'd like for those who are still here with us tonight to just take pulse, see what you feel. And I know that automatically there are two sides to this, to every story. And if you realize the word Matis used a lot tonight was in the other hand, because that's <laughs> dialectical. Wherever you go, you're going to hear A and B. And we started off with one concept. For some, it was the right foot. And for some, it was on the left foot and hard to go back and see how you validate the other side when you hear so clear that you can compassion and understanding to one side. So it's, it's, a, it's an important piece to just realize. And again, whatever we discussed tonight does not mean that it applies to you. Uh, we don't know exactly where you are and there are different levels, everybody in their own level. But one thing I can tell everybody here is go take care of yourself. No matter where you are, get the help you need. Speak to people, whether it's professional or to Rabbanim, just so that you can start the process and know what the right thing to do. Because no matter where you are, whether, whether people do understand you or people don't understand you, well, you might feel therapists don't get you or people don't get you. You might feel that way. Find somebody who you can talk to. 
and slowly, hopefully, Mitzvah with Siyata Deshmaya, you'll be able to find and see the hope that we hear from the therapist that there is hope in Mitzvah Yeah, thank you so much, Menachem. So I guess with my closing is, firstly, I want to acknowledge, uh, deeply acknowledge, that um, this is this is really difficult, really complicated work to the degree is um, I could only do so many or help so many of individuals who are struggling with this disorder myself. You know, I, you can't in a caseload to have more than a few people struggling with this disorder. At the same time, I don't think that's their fault. And, and I think we have a responsibility as therapists to keep studying and learning and educating. Um, and because, again, there's a continuum, as everyone said, in severity. Um, but I know the people that I've worked with and watched them work so hard and make so much change and build trust and learn to deal with their emotions. And sometimes hurtful in the process. And sometimes I needed a break. And sometimes I had to put up really strong limits. And I know what I could do and not do. At the same time, I only get it in the therapy room. And I know, although it's not that fault, the, the, the pain and, and, and the uh, damage that can happen to those who don't get the help and those who refuse to get the help and those who blame everyone else for all their problems and their issues. And for those who uh, use uh, really unhealthy means of behavior to control their environment and who explode and are punitive and critical that's where a lot of these people develop these disorders because they grow up in such environments. And uh, by no means can I uh, really grasp the depth of that. And for that reason, there are people who decided to leave relationships or stop relationships. And I, I 100%, billion percent in my heart, not for me to judge them and say, oh, how could you just look at their pain, give them a chance? No, no, not at all. You know, they're doing what they need to do um, and in those situations. And I applaud them for that, for being strong and making those choices. And I applaud the ones who stick in and who suffer their entire lives because for whatever their reasons is, they decide to do that and always learn to look to grow and to come on shows like this to see what can I learn to get a little bit more empathy, support, validation, understanding. And I support and I respect and I appreciate you coming on and listening to me today. Um, and with that, I also uh, hope that you've learned something, but not in terms of approval. And for those who struggle with the disorder and have worked really hard, and I know those people, and some of them might be listening on too, who know me and have done this work, um, I'm amazed and I'm, I'm awed that despite the upbringings they came in, they stopped that multi-generational pattern of, of engaging in those similar behaviors and really wanting to be, a lot of them are driven by wanting to be a better spouse and a better parent and realizing they're hurting people. And yes, in the process. And I wanna give huge credit to those people's spouses because just because they're getting help doesn't mean it's easy. That means they stick with them, they pay for the therapy, they support them through the process. And that's not easy either because it's not, as I said, this is long-term work. This is years of work. Um, so I, I, I want to say that, and, and I do believe that most people who struggle with emotion dysregulation would do anything to take that pill and make it go all the way. And, uh, you know, if I can be a little part of that, help understanding, accept yourselves for who you are 
at the same time, don't give up and continue to work hard because there is hope. And Ritz Hashem will get to that day when we can all be healed from physical and emotional. And we had a rough week this week, as we know. Hopefully it'll be a, bring us one step closer to a world of peace and healing. Amen. Thank you, Matas. I'll see everybody next week. Same time, March 27th with Gadalia Penster. It's going to be amazing. Good night, Matas. Thank you all. Hi, it's Coach Menachem here. If you enjoyed, please consider supporting us with a small monthly, monthly donation to help sustain the future episodes. And it will be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance.